are now reporting, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here. He got called into work at the last second, which is a shame. Uh, but anyway, Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. We cover some various movie topics, jump into a mostly spoiler-free review, then jump back into other film movie topics. This is episode 373. 373. And this week we're talking Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I put extra emphasis on the pause to make sure I get the ellipses in there, and there we go. Uh, joining me this evening to discuss Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we have writer for Variety, Nerdist, and Birth Movies Death, among other sites. I, did, I didn't know he liked the Delphonics. It's Todd Gilchrist. Hi, guys. How are you? Also joining us, managing editor for 812 Film Reviews, just now finishing his $5 milkshake. It's Robert Daniels. <laughs> Hi, guys. How's it going? <laughs> And joining us as well, editor and founder of Award Circuit, wiggling his big toe because he's so happy to be here, it's Clayton Davis. <laughs> yeah, what's up, guys? And I believe uh, there's two different versions of the title going around right now. It's Once Upon a Time in dot, dot, dot Hollywood, which is in the film. And then there's another one where it's Once Upon a Time dot, dot, dot in Hollywood. And this is up for debate. Just saying. <laughs> it's one of the most important debates I think is going on. About I mean, this film. everything else, pretty, everyone yeah. else pretty much agrees about this movie except for the title. I think that's it's what the... it's the, it's the greatest debate since who shot first, Greedo or Han. For sure. Yeah. I actually think they may be converging another um, Democratic primary debate, and they decided <laughs> to table student debt erasure yeah. in order to figure out where the ellipses fit in. The, yes title of tarantino's ninth film that, which that, that's one of the platforms of at least four another, candidates uh, i believe debate topic yeah i mean we'll we'll find this out more as we get into our our review of this film but i'm just i for first off happy all of you guys are here todd good to have you back um, thank you yeah and uh robert good to have you here for the first time yep thanks for having me for sure and clayton good to have you here for the first time as well yeah thanks for having me yeah we, we've had i've had some of your some of your underlings on here before. I've had Joe Braverman and uh, Mark Johnson. and uh, no, those, are, those are definitely underlings. Yeah, you and, describe and, and, and Terrence yeah. Johnson, who was once a part of you guys as well. So, yeah. 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 But uh, no, good good to have you know the big head honcho of award circuit here to finally set some records straight, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But um, let's uh, let's get to some show notes real quick here. Uh, first up, iTunes reviews and ratings. If you if you like the opening nonsense leading up to our further nonsense of the film review for this movie, uh, log on to iTunes, search for Out Now, Theron and Abe, uh, give us a rating review. That'd be great. Thank you in advance. And uh, what else? Uh, we have a new commentary track up. It's for Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, which is out now wherever you can find our podcast. That was a lot of fun to record and should go nicely with this review for this week. And um, yeah. Let's see. Let's uh, let's see. Summer gamble stuff. I, uh, for those that aren't aware, myself and Abe, along with many of the regular guests on the show, have predicted what we think are going to be the top ten highest-grossing films of the summer. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood certainly is a contender in some ways. It opened this weekend to forty million, which is not a bad start for a two forty hour, million. Wow, to a two-hour, forty-five-minute movie that's rated R. That's you know, that's not 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 bad. So we'll see. Yeah, that biggest goes. opener for a Tarantino movie uh, ever. Yeah. So, you know, good good on him for getting marquee stars and making something like this work into, you know, a larger extent. Um, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see what the legs carry it. But, uh, yeah. And, okay, let's move on now. Let's get to some Know Everybody. Each week we ask each other a question or two, try to set the tone for the podcast. We better get to Know Everybody. Just me this week, so I got one question for all you guys. Do you have a go-to Quentin Tarantino soundtrack? Is there one that you reach for to play if you're just, like, in the mood? Uh, mine would certainly be, I think, Jackie Brown. Um, if you ask me when I was in college, 
course, it would have been Pulp Fiction, probably, because I think I listened to the I listened to the the ones and zeros off of the CD. But um, Jackie Brown to me has all that soul. I mean, the Delphonics, be one of them, Bloodstone, all those groups, um, you know, have become really like a like a total part of my um, sort of musical diet on a pretty constant basis. So even if I don't listen to the soundtrack itself, I'm usually I, I, I listen to many of those songs frequently. So I guess that probably would be my pick. Uh, I guess I'd say Reservoir Dogs. Um, it's, Great you know, it's basically, you know, the, the, um, uh, you got Magic Carper right on that soundtrack, and then you've also got a Stuck in the Middle with you. Great scene. Um, yeah, so I think that one. Cool. Clayton? Uh, coincidentally, I think it's for one of his weaker movies, it's the Django soundtrack. That's uh, pretty, it's uh, pretty baller soundtrack. It's just not a great movie that goes with it. I'm a I'm a bigger fan of Django than you, I think. But at the same yeah. time, that is one that I do reach for. Like, for the most part, all of them, aside from like maybe Inglorious Bastards, just because it's so much kind of score heavy thing, is not you know something I just put on to relax to. But like, I think Django just has yeah has a lot of tracks that really work for me. On yeah. Levels. Um. All right. Cool. Well, that's how we play. No, everybody. Let's move on to out now quickies. Each week we'd have one main movie of the week that we talk about, but we always have other movies that we've seen during the week. That's how we have a segment called Out Now Quickies. And with that, let, Clayton, let's start back with you. What, what's, what, what are the movies have you seen recently? Mm, I saw... What did I see this week? My God. I wish I was prepared for this. Um, I actually watched... I mean, past or present, right? Does it have to be like in a it's, theater? Yeah, just whatever whatever you I feel watch? like bringing up, yeah. Yeah, uh, I just watched the Criterion version of um, Amadeus, no, Criterion, uh, Amadeus, the Criterion version of The French Lieutenant's Woman. That's what I saw. Okay. I saw that earlier in the week, and that was really good. Um, it was the first time I had seen the movie in like a gajillion years, so it was kind of like seeing it for the first time. Cool. And then, and then, and then, obviously, uh, I don't think it was this week anyway. I saw The Lion King, but that was more painful than. Uh, I was gonna say, how'd that go? <laughs> that was pretty, pretty, pretty horrible. Yeah, we, we we had plenty of discussion on The Lion King last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what, what it what it was doing. Um, but uh, Robert, how about you? What have, what have you seen recently? A little bit of a slow week for films for me. I think the most recent thing I've seen was the David Crosby documentary, Remember My Name, um, and that one's pretty tight i actually um that's actually one of my favorite documentaries of the year just because david crosby is just so open and honest and that film is so brutally truthful about his shortcomings um yeah i think that's actually one of the best music docs um of the last few years does it do a because it feels like i've been seeing a lot of docs coming out recently that are kind of necessarily hagiographies but like kind of giving you the rundown of like who a person is without having much like Mike, the Mike Wallace is here doc is coming out as well. And it's like, okay, like there's value there. I, I've heard a lot of good things about the Crosby one though. Does it have a, does it take a, a perspective like that kind of works for it to make it kind of stand out as a doc? Yeah. I mean, it's less of like a Wikipedia or greatest, greatest hits kind of documentary. <laughs> mm-hmm. And actually really does kind of go into some unknown stories about David Crosby and there's one moment I think where David Crosby just is bluntly says I've hurt women and it's like whoa where's this going <laughs> um so yeah it does it does take a perspective of, of Crosby being this kind of relic and 
lonely guy who's near death. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's probably the, one of the more humanistic documentaries that's come out lately. Oh, very cool. Todd, how about you? Um, well, let's see. Uh, you know, I'm not, I, I, I recently wrote a piece about uh, this kind the leopard which i also watched on uh, the other uh, criterion collection blu-ray and that movie is phenomenal um I've, I've been plugging away on a lot of different things so i haven't had as much time as i would like to to see uh you know a lot of new releases but and i actually wasn't even able to go last week but there was a um i don't even think it was an anniversary but they just did a retrospective screening um at a couple of theaters in los angeles of ang lee's eat drink man woman and that is one of my all-time favorite movies. And um, and I, like I said, I didn't even get to go because I had too much other stuff to do. But, um, but I hear yeah. I hear Gemini Man is a spiritual sequel to Eat Drink Man Woman. Yes, yes, a spiritual <laughs> sequel for sure. <laughs> well, it's the what? It's the 25th anniversary of it. It works, right? Yeah, yeah. Am I doing my uh, math right? Yeah, that's right. I think 94. that's right. Yeah. yeah I'm like, <laughs> okay. Well, cool. Um, I saw um, Apocalypse Now, the final cut. In a, in a special IMAX presentation this week, which I was very excited about because nice. I I've see, I see I've seen Apocalypse Now once on the big screen, which was when the redo came out back in two thousand one, and I was much younger. And I've been, I've been a fan of the film ever since. I've seen the original cut of, as well. Um, and watching the final cut, I was very curious as to what Coppola is going to be doing this time around with this giant story, and. I, I think this may be my preferred cut because I I never had a problem with the French plantation sequence and the way that some people did, um, but it does cut out some other thing. It cuts out like the second visit with the or like the visit with the bunnies that takes place after, which I, th- I think that was the scene that really kind of dragged it down for me. So it was like, all right, I I like what he's kind of went for here with this now <laughs> tight three hour and two minute cut of this movie. Um, at the same time, just seeing it in IMAX with this 4K remaster, it just looks phenomenal. Like it's and it's such a draining experience to watch this movie with all the imagery that's going on and all the use of, especially towards the end when you just have all the, the bleakness at Kurtz's camp and Brando's big close-ups and everything. Seeing that on an IMAX screen, certainly quite worthwhile. So uh, I know that's hitting in a few weeks if uh, anybody has interest in seeing Apocalypse Now on the big screen. This is certainly a way to do it. Uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely, I actually, that was a screening that I wasn't able to attend because of other stuff that I had to do, but, um, but I was really, I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking out that new, um, uh, mastered, uh, version of the movie. And also, you know, hopefully, uh, how much of the, uh, see how much of that, the plantation stuff still is in there, because I do think that it kind of drags the movie to a, a halt a little bit at the, it, too early in the movie for it to do that yeah i think apocalypse now is one of those uh films kind of like star wars that you ask a bunch of people have they ever seen it but you're unsure about what version they've seen and we don't know how they can even get to the core version the original version like is it does it still exist out there in some some way shape or form so I, i think it always becomes an interesting thing when you ask someone like uh those types of questions because then we don't we we don't we don't know if we've even seen the same movie even though we have we're saying that we have unlike lucas coppola the, there's like a, the new 4k blu-rays coming out and it has all like the theatrical cut the redux and the final cut all available so it's yeah. like you certainly have your options when you, yeah, true. when you pick this movie up again as well yeah. as as well as the hearts of darkness documentary which is also terrific um, oh so good yeah all right well that was that no quickies tm let's let's just get into it guys let's get to our let's get to the main review for once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> 
Don't you forget it. All right, that should have been some of the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. According to the movie advertisements, this is the ninth film from director Quentin Tarantino, with reportedly one more to go before a self-imposed retirement. For this possibly penultimate film, Tarantino shifts his eyes towards 1969 Hollywood. Leonardo DiCaprio stars as Rick Dalton, a struggling actor making do with guest starring as bad guys in TV westerns. Brad Pitt is his best friend Cliff Booth, Rick's stunt double slash personal driver and all-around housekeeper. Rick's home neighbors, the home of Roman Polanski and actress Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, Robbie, in a supporting role, along with many other notable stars filling out the cast of this sprawling film. The actual plot is a little less complex than the story being told, but another factor hanging on to the fringes are the members of the Manson family who have their own role to play in this Tarantino fairy tale. I'm going to start with Clayton. Did you find Tarantino's ode to this period in time to be effective? Uh, effective, yes. The, when I came out of the movie, I think one of the first things I said to myself and then to others was that this, the first like 90 minutes or so are made for critics and, uh, film academia and people who just love and indulge themselves in the movies. So I've seen like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Just like cinephiles. And I, but I, but I knew coming out, and I've seen it twice now. I, you know, I, went, I went to the critics' reading, and then I took my wife uh, yesterday. And then after the ninety minutes are over, and then we kind of get into the latter stuff. Uh, I was like, okay, that that stuff looks like it was made for general audiences, maybe, in a way. Uh, and without kind of, uh, we're doing a very, very uh, simplistic fifty thousand overview. I think that his love and passion for the time is evident and you can see it obviously in every creation. Um, although I think it borders sometimes on self-indulgent because I think it just feels 
like he wanted to make it for himself. Like he wanted to see these worlds created. And while the cinephiles are going to like it, it depends on how much they're going to want to just stay there and relish it. And is it earned with a two hour and 41 minute runtime? That's, that's what's I think kind of debated uh, heavily after its release. All right. But all in all effective. Okay. Robert. I I thought of involving you for this episode because I read an uh, uh, an article you wrote about uh, about Pulp Fiction and how it's it felt like it feels like it at the time you said it was Quentin Tarantino yeah, Quentin Tarantino's last personal film and I thought of I wanted to ask knowing that knowing what you've written about his you know his efforts over the past what did you think as far as his his personality being injected into this film this time around. Yeah, um, I, I do think that Pulp Fiction is his last personal film. And, you know, the coincidence of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out now being a personal film as well. I know a lot of people have said that it this is his most personal film, which is really difficult to judge. But in terms of his personality being injected into this, um, you know, I think Clayton said it best about um, you can see – the love that he has for this period, for this era, um, the films that influenced him and, and he grew up with, and maybe even he watched and as that guy as the clerk in the video store um, coming through to the uh, to the foreground, at least for the first 90 minutes. And then, you know, the rest of the film kind of goes wild and crazy with uh, Booth and, and um, Rick Dalton's relationship. But, um, but it's, it, his, I'd say, like, compared to, to say, like, Pulp Fiction, right? There, there are less moments where it feels like there are tangential conversations going on, where the tangential conversations are more Tarantino's personal musings, and instead, this feels, in terms of the dialogue, um, feels less in the dialogue and more so in the imagery than I think any other Tarantino film. Um, whereas Pulp Fiction, you know, is, is less, I think in imagery and more in the dialogue. All right. Todd, um, as someone I, I know who appreciates this era, at least from a music standpoint, what'd you think mm-hmm. of, what'd you think of his handle on the atmosphere of this film? I mean, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I have so many thoughts about, a lot of the things that have already been said about the movie and um, in terms of its, I think it's recreation of period detail is remarkable. uh, Perhaps most of all, because so little of it seems like it was done with uh, CGI or, you know, sort of post production effects. Like, you know, this looks like facades that were built and, and locations that were reconstructed. But um, in terms of creating that atmosphere that you're asking about, I mean, I think it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. I mean, it has a, a certainly, a, I think, a, that Tarantino-esque, um, you know, sort of magic realism in terms of, you know, everything that they're watching is either a, 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 a it's like a, a radio commercial for a movie or an advertisement for something that no longer exists or, you know, a regional um uh, uh, you know, advertisement or something like that. I, I like, I love all that stuff as part of the music, uh, the, the, the sonic tapestry of the movie, in addition to the music, which I think, you know, sort of very skillfully bounces back and forth between, you know, pop 
songs like, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Robinson and then, and then delves into ones that are comparatively more obscure. Um, and it also doesn't, in a, and I think in a really kind of cool way, it doesn't just sort of, um, rely upon like sort of the Laurel Canyon, you know, folk pop stuff that was really popular, um, in that era, you know, or that, or that was sort of the, uh, it, its own little mini cultural phenomenon in Los Angeles in the late sixties. It, it, you know, it turns to a lot of, um, a lot of really great music that I think all fits into the same, it, that all feels very cohesive and at the same time touches on both like, um, again, uh, stuff that's popular and then a few things that are slightly more obscure. Well, thanks. Um, as we kind of get deeper into our thoughts on the film and various aspects of it, I guess a question that I'm sure all of you guys kind of thought of as we we're going to this is why this story? Why is it that Tarantino wanted to tell this story? And from my perspective, looking at this movie and coming out of it, keeping in mind that he's been, especially since he's just, he's a, he has a new movie out, so he's doing a lot more interviews, but he, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on him stopping, him, him st- retiring from filmmaking stopping at 10 films specifically and even some questioning stopping now and looking at that telling this story i feel like i'm starting i'm starting to get it like just the based off what kind of move what kind of story he decided to tell here as far as mainly following rick dalton and cliff booth in hollywood at this time and i look at that and i, I think there's a lot that, as i mean you mentioned robert already as far as being a personal story it feels like there's a lot of himself in this movie as far and telling it through these characters as far as being a person that's getting older in a film atmosphere that's just not really as cohesive with him as it once was and i find that kind of fascinating uh at the same time there's so much here that i really enjoyed as far as tarantino's writing the the way he stages certain sequences his choices when it comes to how he's going to show scenes play out such as the Rick Dalton Western uh, moments where he's you know actually acting on screen and how he chooses to portray that, and then you have all the other things involving what else is going on with this story. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that as far as him telling this particular story and, and what how he kind of how effective that may or may not have been? Yeah. Um, so the, the, one one of the big things I think I saw and. Uh, correct me am I, am I the youngest on this podcast? Probably I'm like I'm 35. So I because I, I, I say that I'm younger than you. Okay, so, <laughs> I'm young. Whatever. I'll, I'll, all right. Well, I was trying to hold that on. Thanks, guys. So <laughs> well, don't, don't, well, listen, I'm the oldest. So all right, that's good. All right, so so we're in the top two there. So no, I, I say that actually because um, I'm, I'm a late bloomer in the discovery of film and older film, especially right. Like I didn't come from like a cinematic family in terms of, you know, them showing me like the good old Westerns growing up. Like I had to discover all that on my own post, you know, 18 years old after college kind of stuff. So I'm like discovering this, a lot, a lot of these things in, in, in new ways uh, now. And I, when I came out of first, when I knew about what the story was kind of circling and the, in particular, the, uh, the Sharon Tate, mm-hmm. you know, part and Charles Manson, I quickly realized how little the world. And I say like the general, like average moviegoer walking down the street probably even knows that story. And, 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 and if they know the story, they know it incorrectly and it's just kind of became like these like uh urban legend kind of myths about it about like 
how Sharon Tate died and who actually killed Sharon Tate. So when I was watching the movie and I went, when the movie was over and I came out of it, I thought to myself, do general audiences know about this and are they going to get this and are they going to get the weight of the entire last 30 minutes or even like a, a little bit in the middle part as well. So when you ask like why this story in a lot of ways, I think Tarantino wanted to do maybe two things. One, he wanted to tell this generation of, I guess my age errors that like are, we're not old enough where we weren't born in the sixties or anything that to know those films and TV shows. And as the older generation goes off to pasture, you know, where history is not going to remember a lot of those and not going to be a lot of people to talk about it. So I think he wanted to inspire us to go seek some of that stuff out. And I barely know the the great escape myself. Like, you know, I've seen it before, uh-huh. but, but now I want to go see it again. So I can get like that whole DiCaprio insertion thing again. Um, however, I think he needed to do a much better job of it's it's been like the one criticism of marvel the the mcu as we've gone through every movie people always complain about like oh you don't tell me enough about like what's happened up until now i think he needs to do a better job of educating the public about like what was gonna happen and what did happen and then what he chose to insert i think he dabbles too much into I, i think he doesn't make clear what's fake and what's real in terms of characters and actual sequences. I mean, and for for me, for me, it's fine. I because I like I said, like I'm barely educated enough to make it through it, and I was okay with it. My wife was lost the entire time in terms of knowing even exactly what happened. And that's why I said the urban legend of Charles Manson has probably deterred a lot of the general public and their uh, reaction to it. I mean, they ended up with a B cinema score, which I think is a little bit surprising. I thought it was going to be a little bit on the lower end for that reason. I mean, to to what you're saying specifically, I mean, the the, the most frank way I could put it is it's not a documentary. I mean, it's not it's not trying to tell a story that's reflective of things that actually happened. It's telling you something from a very Tarantino perspective, uh, and I I can't I can't say I mean I'm no better expert on the Manson family or you know what have you going into this either i know probably maybe more than the average person in the way that you're, you're suggesting yeah. but I, ca- I can't say that i needed the movie to fill in any gaps for me i mean I, um but i i think if you if you know the story like if you know what actually happens like the last frame in particular if you don't know anything going into it then that last frame means nothing to you then there's I mean, nothing I, I, well i would say i i, I, I disagree I with that I, I, I mean, I would disagree with that pretty emphatically. Um, I mean, just to go back a little bit, um, just to, and to touch on sort of the idea of what constitutes a personal Tarantino film and not, what I think is interesting is, you know, the word that you used, I believe, was you called it sort of cohesive earlier, um, uh, Aaron. And, and I wouldn't say um, that, that his movies were more cohesive when they had these sort of very dialogue-heavy exchanges that were about sort of his 
Um, and, and Robert, you were touching on sort of the speeches and the conversations that he was having in some of his earlier films. To me, what he, I think he was doing, I think he had a very isolated filmmaking style. Now, you're talking to a person who watched Reservoir Dogs like in high school and became so obsessed with it that I saw Pulp Fiction five times in the first week he came out. I'm not criticizing those movies at all, but when I watch the later movies that he's made, I'm realizing that he's able to apply that technique of in, injecting this pop culture specificity or the, you know, the nuance and the poetry of his dialogue into a specific subject as opposed to a digression from a central narrative. Um, and I think that he's done that increasingly well. I mean, the opening scene from Inglorious Bastards to me is the best scene he's ever written. And at one time I used to say it was the, 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 you know, the Sicilian scene from true romance. And, and, and I believe in subsequent years, somebody asked him what his, the favorite scenes he had ever written were. And it was those two. But to me, the difference is that one is about, you know, a, a side, uh, you know, a sidebar in the middle of this other movie and the, and, and in inglorious bastards, it's very specifically about a character and the substance of that character in a specific situation and how he executes his needs to, you know, to propel the story forward. Um, and this movie, I would say that I, I think that it personally is, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the movie I did know about and other stuff that I didn't know about, but I don't feel like, um, I, quite frankly, in a, in a universe where you mentioned the Marvel universe and, and I do feel like everything is so, so thoroughly recapped and set up and reiterated and, and repeated that the idea of creating a world of, again, that I, again, would characterize as sort of magic realism. I think that what he very successfully does is create this, this very skillfully blurred line where you're watching a movie that you're like, Oh, this is based on what story is this guy real? Is that guy real? Is this person? And, and I think that like, if really, if you just know that Sharon Tate was real, then she, even knowing that just that one character was real to me, creates this sort of, you know, magic transcendent through line that carries the rest of the movie where it's fiction and where it's fact. And then I, would, I would say that comes through in, in just the way he set up the movie, like regardless of like, you, like you said, if you just know one thing about it, I think the movie makes it clear enough that he's telling a very specific story, regardless of who, of, of who exists, who doesn't, what have you from, from where I'm standing anyway. Sure. Well, yeah. Well, 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 just, I mean, just, just uh, if I could just sure. finish the thought Sorry. is that, yeah. you know, you, uh, that one of the things that, that Clayton said was that he felt like the, the last shot is not meaningful or at least is not necessarily going to be meaningful to someone who does not know uh, details about the history of, of Sharon Tate and, and the Manson murders. Um, I mean, really what it comes down to is that the entire movie is, is a, uh, a meditation on obsolescence lessons and getting old and and wondering if you should still be doing something that you feel like you're good at that people won't let you do and you know you arrive at a moment i mean the opening scene is one essentially um where you have um rick dalton drive home he sees that that um that Roman Polanski is the hottest director in Hollywood after, after Rosemary's baby. And he's like, Oh wow. You know, I hope I get to like maybe talk to him. It would be so great. And they like make the joke about like one, you know, you go to one barbecue and next thing you know, you're in a Roman Polanski movie and literally all this stuff happens. And he worries the whole movie is about him worrying about whether he has any value in, in a, um, an entertainment and in a culture that, that, you know, repeatedly spit, you know, chews people up and spits them out. Um, and the end of the movie is him having that, you know, serendipitous 
a meeting with this with the a person that can facilitate that sort of like pie in the sky little dream that he has. And to me, I think that's like really powerful. You know, I mean, like it's very profound to me in a very substantial thematic way that I feel like doesn't rely on or or require you to be knowledgeable about the particulars of the real or imagined history that he is exploring. And what I would just say about that that last frame is, and I don't know if this is like kind of spoiler, but like I mean. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is obviously a film about a friendship between Booth and Dalton, and it's also somewhat of a breakup film um, in terms of these two friends that are seem like they have divergent paths, and that last frame, if you view it through that lens of um, Dalton standing in the middle of the driveway without Booth, without having his friend to help him, I think is still a powerful sequence a uh, powerful shot even without knowing anything about Sharon Tate. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, I, I think that, well, I think this feeds into my, my theory of when I walked out of the film of saying, if you're cinephile, this movie's going to do it for you. If you're not, it doesn't. So in me going to it, the second viewing with my wife who like likes movies cause I do, but is not a cinephile by any means she was lost for so much of it. Didn't know that Charles Manson made an appearance in the film or knowing what that is or knowing that that was him or not. And then in the last frame, when we first, when the, when the, when the credits were rolling and we saw the, uh, the, the end credits of Leo, whatever. And we were laughing at that part. I turned to her. I was like, did you like it? And she was like, no. And I was like, no, not at all. She's like, like, no, like I, like I, I think I don't get it. And she, she, it just did nothing for her. And then when I explained everything to her and like, and I, didn't, I didn't mansplain anything or I was just, I was just explaining like the Sharon Tate, uh, murder and, and all that. Then she was like, Oh my God, like, Oh, and, and then like it started clicking for her, but then she became even more frustrated by the movie. Cause she was like, I think I would have liked it so much more if I had been, if I had knowledge about that. Cause then the entire last for even minus the last frame itself of just a pan away. It's the conversation with Emil Hirsch. That is also like very profound. And I get it again in the moment. Cause I'm knowledgeable about it and I can, I can, I can connect with that. And I think if you guys, if, if, if general moviegoers can take it as a friendship film, sure then yeah they can get more out of it than that i got a lot of weight in the last 30 minutes of a, much what he does in inglorious bastards in the last 20 minutes and any general person knows that hitler is a terrible person even if you don't know the details but he's famous enough in the sense of the word that like seeing him get shot in the face, you're like, okay, yeah, he deserves this. I think a lot of the things that happen in the last part of the film, if you're not knowledgeable about it, it becomes overkill. And it can also come off as this is a little too much. And why are we treating people like this in a movie? Not under, if you don't understand what it is that they do in real life. Okay, sure. I think that's a. I mean, I, I think that's a a fair characterization um, yeah. in terms of uh, you know feeling that it that the end of that movie is excessive. But the question is, uh, th- but the question just becomes, what is it that you want 
from a story, and, you know, and, and which not to get too existential about it, because it's like, you know, if you accept a story on its own terms, then that means that you take, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in any sort of accusatory or, or, uh, or, or, or um, a critical way, but I'm like, you, if you accept that, you know, you are watching a story that someone has decided what is important and what isn't, then you have to accept that story on, on its, on its face is what it is. Um, and so, you know, and, and that means that, you know, Tarantino as, as has long, 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 long since been the case is, you know, is, is a taste that is very specific and specific to, to, to different kinds of people. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson's the same way. Wes Anderson's the same way, you know, dozens of other auteurs, they have very specific points of view that they're telling stories from that may or may not be as, um, uh, expository or, you know, or as, or as immediately accessible as uh, some other movie, which is, which is, I think, and so I, fun. And I, t- and I totally get that. But, but, but what happens is then what I, I guess gets a little frustrating about it is that sometimes he decides to kind of set up some knowledge for us in particular, give us name cards to Steve McQueen, Michelle Phillips, and JC bring. And it's the only time we get name cards in the movie and I'm just like, that could have helped probably those people who weren't as knowledgeable about it. Well, especially with, uh, with Kurt Russell narrates a bunch of, of very specific details about who Sharon Tate's hanging out with at a specific time. Wait, yeah. when, Kurt, Kurt, when Kurt Russell narrates what? Say again? He gives us a very specific narration of who's who involved with Sharon Tate during a, a when we're kind of getting a catch up point there's a there's a lengthy narration sequence that involve that really that explains exactly who Sharon Tate's with and who these people are and what have you yeah no and yes that's what I'm saying like he takes the time for for certain aspects of the film and then the I think some of the key things that people wouldn't have been in the know about like he probably didn't need to set up who Roman Polanski was through a Kurt Russell narration like we would have people would have caught on to that but I think maybe something else could have extended. I think this movie is is because it's the way the way it is, and because it's a very very respectful and homage to a, a genre and a time period that everyone that's going to be of that most of people that are going to be seeing this movie are not going to be alive for or know anything about. I think you needed to almost like extend the extend extend yourself up and and make sure that they could could connect better to it because i i do believe that's that he lost some general audiences there with that said oscar voters will eat this up with a spoon as will critics as we see right now and, and this me and i like the film plenty but i just i i would love more people to like it without having or or i would like to not have to explain things to people in order for them to understand what it what it is, I guess is kind of my frustration with it. I can hear what you're saying, and I want to shift gears a bit because I want yeah. one. I want to get Robert a little bit more involved in this conversation, and I want us to talk about other things. I think we're focusing on one aspect of it a bit, but before we do that, um, okay, let me do this. Let's get some like some because I want to get us into kind of open to spoiler territory, but obviously not everyone might not may have seen this movie yet. So if you have not seen this movie yet, I'm going to say that the next part of this conversation, if we get into spoilers, we get into spoilers. So you've been warned essentially about this. Um, From where I'm sitting, it sounds like Todd and I are big fans of the film. Clayton, you like the film and you feel like it, but you feel like it's maybe holding back a bit as far as what can make you like it more. Robert, where are you on the film as like in general, as like as a whole? Um, 
I really like the film. I'm on the really like now bandwagon. At first, when I came out of the film, I was somewhat lukewarm to it. It took a couple of days for me to kind of just, I hate the term, but chew on it for a little bit. Um, and uh, it's interesting listening to the dialogue about, you know, for, uh, background knowledge on the Manson family. Maybe because I'm just like, I, I love true crime stories mm-hmm. that the Manson, the whole, the whole Manson background just seemed like, oh, this is one of the most famous murders of the last 50 years. Of course, everyone knows about it. And now they, you know, hear that there's not a general knowledge of it is somewhat surprising. So I almost wonder how much of it is just Tarantino being within that generation and just assuming that everyone would know about the Manson murders and, and maybe wrongly assuming just yeah. like myself. Um, but I ended up really loving the film and I ended up loving what, some of the stuff we've already talked about. Um, just the attention, to detail to the period, especially when it comes to costume and, you know, the, you know, the little itty bits of like, you'll hear like an advertisement on a radio or something like that. Or, uh, whenever, um, Booth is riding through LA, especially at night, uh, the night shots. And those are just fantastic. When you see like the neon signs of movie theaters. Um, and that's something once I, again, I really liked about the film and gen- the, the, how much of an L.A. film this tries to be, like regardless of what details it gets wrong about what streets people are able to turn on at a certain point, <laughs> I, I, I like the, the 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 kind of extended sequences, especially of Cliff because he's the main one doing it, but extended sequences of people driving because of how spread apart L.A. can be. And so you, I, I feel like that gave you a great sense of like of the city just by nature of him having to drive all over the place. And you get, you know, you get some radio hits in the process, which is, you know, fun as well and you get the great you know the great camera work to both show off the visual effects recreation of this the city at this time and just let you kind of rest on characters faces for a while to get performance in that manner todd you're you know you live in la do you have any similar thoughts as that or i mean i loved it as an la movie um you know i mean i moved out to la in 2001 and it's astonishing how much this city has changed in that time um for me um in terms of getting, you know, seeing things disappear, get erased, you know, torn down, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I, I certainly it's interesting, the conversation we're having about how much people should know or not know or how much they will or won't know. I mean, what's what's really fascinating to me is just how the movie, um, you know, sort of it, it it really, I think the 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 potential biggest flaw or, or the thing that I would be uh, assume that people might be most bothered by is how the film is so unhurried and not plot driven. I mean, like all those other details, I think you can discover via research or looking it up or, you know, uh, cult, uh, contextual clues or whatever it is. But to me, it's like, I can understand. And as a person who watches his movies often, the first time I see them, I'm so eager to find out what happens that sometimes I feel like I'm almost initially disappointed um, because I'm like, Oh, like, why are these scenes? Like these scenes are just going on forever for no reason. And what you realize over subsequent viewings at the, is that there's all this meaning to them. But this movie in particular, I do think, is very unhurried and, and kind of meanders a little bit. I mean, that was a note that I took while I was watching it. And this is from a person who really likes the movie, you know. And there's a lot of that driving and all that kind of stuff that I think is really 
fun to watch in terms of the photography and in terms of the, you know, just the performances. And, and, you know, I'm like, I know Tarantino would love to be able to just film, you know, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio racing up and down Canyon roads while Mamas and Papas play. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm happy to do that too. But, um, but, you know, I thought it really captured the energy and the, and the sprawl of Los Angeles. And particularly if you live in Los Angeles and you know it all, um, you know, the movies that he's been showing, even just passing familiarity with some of the 60s movies that he's been showing at the New Beverly and the lead up to that. One of them is Model Shop, which I think it's, it's, it was a movie that I watched not too long ago. And that was a movie that very much had the similar sprawl, except that it was shot in the, it was released in 1969. Jacques Demy directed it. And, you know, you, you, it, he doesn't perfectly recreate that time, but he does absolutely perfectly create the same sense that that movie did of what Los Angeles was like at that time. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot there, like you're saying, mm-hmm. as, far, as far as how he's trying to present this city, especially his take on the city. I mean, you've talked about what magical realism is that what you said? You've, yeah, you've said? yeah, that's how and I mean, that's very much apparent here. I mean, that yes, the city has a, it looked a lot like this. That's certainly what he's trying to accomplish. But there is the sense that this is Tarantino guiding the show because he's, you know, he's making this kind of rose-colored glasses version of Hollywood where innocence still exists to some form, but dreaded hippies and whatnot are taking it over, and it's really messing up Rick Dalton's vibe or what have you. And, <laughs> the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> with, what was I going to say? With, <laughs> I lost it. What was it? <laughs> um, I'll, yeah, I'll jump to Clayton. Clayton, do you have any, any other thoughts on kind of the, the way we're presented with everything here? Yeah. And we're talking spoilers now, right? Yeah, we can get into the end. Yeah, yeah, good. All right. So, so now I can like stop beating around the bush about like some of the things there. So the um I, I think a lot of what he does really well, um the things I I was just enamored with were anything Leonardo DiCaprio touched in the film, essentially. Like I I was a little iffy on it when I came out in terms of saying this, but now I think I'm firmly on. I think this is the best work he's ever done. I, I honestly feel like it was almost like the role he was born to play because I think he, what he captures, I think is even probably even more personal to him than it maybe the subject matter was to Tarantino in a, in a weird way. Um, huh. how, how, however, and I, I think actually Margot Robbie, I know one of the big, criticisms out there have been margot robbie with no lines but yet she has like 35 minutes of screen time i think that was really effective in particular with the movie theater sequence which i believe is probably like her like oscar moment or oscar scene if she's going to get nominated this year because i think I think I think obviously watching Sharon Tate actually on screen, the, the actual actress, not Margot Robbie playing her, uh, really shows respect to to the actress and really calling into the time. Um, and I think Margot Robbie just captures like that, that that innocence and then the promise of a future that never was. And I and I I'm really I'm really into that part where I get most critical. I think is. Um, for for me now, this is me watching as a cinephile, and what I take some parts of this I think are some of Tarantino's best writing he's ever done. Um, and then there are some I don't think he earns his screen time in particular. I think there's a lot of I, I agree with what Todd. I think Todd said it. It's a lot of meandering shots, especially watching it the second time. Like I was almost counting at times. I was like, this scene could have been cut 
and we could have gotten down to like 25 minutes like less and i think the movie still is just as effective and even probably more so um so yeah i don't think he particularly earns a runtime and i think the establish or creation of cliff booth brad pitt's character is highly problematic um because of where where what he gives us in him and showing his kind of affinity for violence uh that he may or may not but definitely did kill and murder his wife (laughs) at one point and then the end sequence of showing him smash a woman's face into a fireplace and into frames and all over a house and then have a dog mutilate a woman uh on screen but then also a guy for a little bit of a while and then have Leonardo DiCaprio torture, I think became a little bit much uh, in a time, even though I knew the people he was killing and the one of the folklore that I was talking about or the, the history thing is, is that my wife thought and a lot of people I've spoken to who are general people thought Charles Manson really he physically killed Sharon Tate. And I think that's what people were waiting for. And they were like, I thought Charles Manson killed Sharon Tate. Who are these three people? And that's why I think the history then gets a little uh, muddied. And I think that's why the the end scene could have some problems for people if you don't know I that. Guess I, I'm just I can't like get into behind like the the worry of people's ignorance to hinder my enjoyment of the movie in that. Yeah, right? I, I, I <laughs> it's it, it just something I I became very very aware of and i was just, I, it was something that i just i was thinking about just is something that just and then it was just solidified in not just watching it with my wife but then watching it with other people and i was listening to and i actually was speaking to i always talk to a few strangers if i go to a theater and they ask them like what their thoughts are on the movie and a lot of people were just like oh it was really long and i just didn't get a lot of it and i think I mean, it could be a culture thing, it could be age thing, it could be a, a, lot, a number of factors. But I just think there are some things that don't quite connect wholly for either side of uh, a cinephile or a general audience watcher. You let me know when you want me to start. <laughs> start. I, got, I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of responses to that, but I, I want to give uh, you know Robert, of course, the opportunity to inject his thoughts as well. I, I don't want to dominate this at all Robert, you want it you ought to have anything in response to what clean just said um i think mostly what i've been kind of think what i've been wrestling with is uh the bruce lee how uh sequences and how he's represented because uh, it's the one part of the the of once upon a time in hollywood that i just cannot fully wrap my mind around and i think it's probably i think it's probably the most problematic portion the fact that it's this is the one person of color in this film. And obviously Bruce Lee is such an icon and the, the comedy of him being basically being a buffoon felt mm-hmm. very much like him punching down, you know, for, for comedic effect. Yeah. And, um, well, I think that for me, that's, that's the most problematic portion of the film. Um, can we, less... can, can we talk about that a little bit? Cause I, yeah. I, I, I hear that and I don't like, I don't disagree as far as, the way it could come off to certain people, but I also think who knows more about Bruce Lee than Tarantino? Probably, like I, he, I mean, I'd imagine he probably has the most knowledge, along with other, you know, Bruce Lee scholars or what have you, and he knows exactly what he's doing. But, but then also, he made him a cartoon. But what I think, what I, but what I think about that scene is, well, who's telling that story? And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a daydream from Cliff. Like he's look, he's, he's thinking back on something and telling his version of the story to us, and I. I 
if you want to call it problematic as far as how certain people can view it, fine. But at the same time, from the way the story's telling it to me, it just it it seems like <laughs> it seems like Clips going out. He, he's he's telling this version of a story where he was able to go hand to hand with Bruce Lee and defeat him. And I look at that thinking, well, that's a bunch of bullshit. Like I don't like I I know I I know that's fake in my eyes. I I know that's and it gives me an opinion on who Cliff is to begin with, where. He see he has this this vibe because he's played by Brad Pitt and he's doing he's you know badassing around town in cars or what have you. But then who is this guy really? He's he lives out in a trailer somewhere. He has a shady past. He's a shitty on, trailer too. He's hit, yeah, he's hitting on younger <laughs> women and he daydreams about beating up Bruce Lee. It's like I, in his mind, yeah, he seems like he's the hero of his own story. But I take a step back from that and I think this guy's just a dick. Like he's you might think like he might have this kind of, of allure to him. But at the same time, it's like this guy's not like they may have gotten to some scuffle, but I'm not I'm not buying the story that he's telling me. So it, it's hard for me to think like Bruce Lee's memory has been shat upon because of this little sequence here. It's not like he's already an icon. It's like I think in 50 years, we could probably make fun of Bruce Lee a little bit for the sake of this character telling this version of a story. Yeah. And I would I would also well, I would add I actually got to interview Mike Moe, the actor who played Bruce Lee. And we had a conversation. We had a, a pretty long conversation, actually, about the whole idea of, of, of Bruce Lee squaring off against this fictional character. And, you know, of course, uh, in real life, Bruce Lee would have mopped the floor with the stuntman. And in fact, Bruce Lee did not have a lot of respect for stuntmen because he could beat them. Um, but. Um, I mean, it's true, you know, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, 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 uh, Bruce Lee. Um, I love his movies and, you know, I didn't look at, I mean, my, my initial response was not to look at it from a perspective of, of optics, uh, which I didn't look at any of the movie. Um, and you know, whatever that is, uh, whatever blind spots of mine I have, I, I acknowledge and, 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 or, and respect in terms of the difference of opinion. But, but I mean, you know, as far as Bruce Lee is concerned in the movie, um, I think that it fairly and probably pretty accurately represents the level of confidence or overconfidence that Bruce Lee in fact did have. Um, and also one of the things that Mike Moe pointed out very, I think astutely is, um, you know, that one of the big legends of Bruce Lee's life was the Wong Jack man fight that he did, which was this, you know, this iconic legendary battle that he had had with another San Francisco martial arts instructor. And there are all these conflicting accounts about how, about how badly he mopped the floor with this guy or how this guy, you know, fought him for 20 minutes and, you know, had him on his knees. And there have been all these different portrayals and representations of that throughout cinematic and real history at differing accounts. And, you know, essentially what he suggested, what Mike Moe suggested, the actor who was playing Bruce Lee said was that, you know, this might have been Tarantino's version of that. That could be the legend where some guy claims that he would have or did beat Bruce Lee when in fact he didn't and fundamentally one of the things that Mike Moe said and he kind of reiterated this in a very funny way was the fight was actually a draw I mean the idea was that he went up they had a conversation he didn't know who Cliff Booth was so he went up and kicked Cliff Booth in the chest knocked him down and he got a point and because he was cocky he went in thinking he was going to just do the exact same thing over again and then Brad Pitt threw him into a car and, you know, and it's like it was his cockiness, not not Cliff Booth's like amazing skill that 
that automatically defeated Bruce Lee. And, you know, I mean, and that was the thing that the actor, I, I don't believe, I, I, like, I kind of agree with that interpretation of it, that it wasn't just like a rationalization that he was making as the performer, but it was, but that was fascinating to me. Um, you know, and I, and I think that, I don't know, it's, there's a, I think we run a, a, a we, we tread dangerous territory when we suggest that if we have one person of color in a movie that they have to be portrayed in any kind of idealized way, much less, um, in a movie where that so clearly is, um, fictionalized or, or heightened. Yeah. Um, well, uh, well, but wouldn't you, but I think of all the characters in the film, I think he's probably one of the only ones that is a cartoon that is like yes, yeah. a buffoon at times. Like he's not as, if everyone was like that, then the whole Manson family is a bunch of cartoon characters. Well, that's true, but I would say one. I think that it's completely very subjective whether or not he is a buffoon. I mean, Bruce Lee. I mean, this is like documented in interviews how how cocky and overconfident he was. I mean, I don't know if he actually ever said, "I think I could beat Muhammad Ali," but I mean, like you know, this was a guy who, who had no shortage of confidence and who was determined to be the bet, the biggest actor in the world. He wanted to be bigger than, than, than Steve McQueen. Um, you know, I mean, at, at the, which he said in, you know, obviously in his heyday. Um, so I don't think that I, I also think that it's one scene. I think that it's a re- recollection. I don't actually think, um, it's like a daydream or, or maybe that was just a, a I thought it was, I thought it was kind of earlier that day or like at some point in the recent, well, it's totally in the past. They established yeah. it by having Kurt Russell be, or like Dalton mentioning that Kurt Russell's character's there, so therefore you can't be a part of this thing. So then he flashes back to this other thing of what that history is. But the the main reason I think it's a date, like a some kind of fantasy version of what happened, is because when you when you see that fight, the first two rounds, the first like before, like with the up to the car thing, there's a bunch of people around all of them. Then that third round, suddenly everybody's gone. So I'm thinking, okay, this is a dip. This is now. This is we're in fantasy's land. That 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 was my take on the on the sequence there. Because mm-hmm. like, it, you know, I mean, every, Clayton, you've seen it twice now. I mean, there is nobody like there was. Everybody was around them watching this fight happen. Then the last time you see them, nobody's there at all until Zoe Bell walks in. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it the second time, and I think the scene ends up becoming just uh, comedy service for the film. Uh, cause other than I that, mean, but other, I mean, other than that, I feel like the scene has no purpose. Like, I, I don't think it offers anything else other than maybe, which is my problem with the movie showing Brad Pitt's affinity for violence. Like he just wants uh, to, I, I mean, I think affinity is, a, I, I would, I would just say that affinity is, is not a fair word. I would say his capacity for violence. Absolutely. It does because I mean, when I think if we got to the end of the movie and he has a showdown with these three, you know, Manson family murderers and he just miraculously is able to do all this stuff, I think we would be uh, understandably skeptical about the sort of invention of that at that moment. But I think that it actually reveals a lot about his character in terms of this is a guy who doesn't need to, you know, spend a lot of time boasting about his prowess in comparison first to Bruce Lee. And then he runs into a situation where he's of course like doped up, you know, and he encounters a situation with three people who are determined to brutally slay him, which is what the Manson family did to Sharon Tate and the other three people in that house. And we now know that he is more than capable of handling them. And I think that it really does communicate character, Uh, even above and beyond, um, 
you know, the entertainment value of the scene of watching, you know, a fictional fight between a legend, quote unquote, legendary Hollywood stuntman who was a Vietnam veteran and who people believe killed his wife. Although, I, to my knowledge, they don't ever confirm or or or, or no, demonstrate just, that. It makes him. It I just, mean, he has a, he has a shady personality. It would seem. Well, well, they they they. I think they pretty much do it without showing it, and they I, and I also feel like they do it in this Natalie Wood type of like you know throw in that i think be becomes because we're supposed to because i think we're supposed to kind of be rooting for brad pitt in a way because obviously the whole sequence at the at the ranch um like pretty much the whole time we're thinking like he's going to get killed at some point on this ranch like we're just waiting for it that never happens um and i think if he I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just something. Maybe it's just something for me. I just think it gives him too much of a pass on being a pretty shitty human being, and I think him just like kind of saluting to Leonardo DiCaprio in an ambulance and driving away, I think just kind of lets him off the hook, and he doesn't give him enough agency in his uh, past indiscretions that. Or alluded to, or very highly suggested. Is the like movie? Killing his I'm, wife. I'm I'm just trying to understand. Like, so you think the movie doesn't like punish him for the misdeeds that people believe about him? I, I mean, I, I I think it get, I think it makes him the hero, and he's well, he definitely the hero. And, yeah, but, that's for sure. Yeah, but and I think he's a and I think he's a monster without without w- just skating outside of showing us that he's a monster. I think if I think if you knew a guy killed his wife. Um, like, and did, you know, and has like these kind of bad things. And then the whole thing, like with Margaret Qualey in the car too, like he says to her, like the law's been trying to get me a long time and it's not going to be with you. You know, like, I think, I think he is a man who obviously just has like issues, but, but he does have this love and friendship for Leonardo DiCaprio. So I guess that's his quote unquote redeeming quality. I just don't think it's enough to be like, all right, like he shouldn't suffer for you know things that he did in his in his lifetime robert where where do you weigh in on on cliff's character i i have less of an issue with cliff's character than clayton does i mean i i do understand like i guess the optics of this really just shitty human being you know being the hero of the story but i mean i don't know I, i don't think all heroes are perfect and I don't know if Cliff's character needs agency either in his actions. I mean, he's basically the lesser of two evils. You got Cliff and then you've got the Manson family, you know? So um, you're almost, you are rooting for the lesser of two evils. And I don't know if, if him or DiCaprio's, if Dalton's character are necessarily meant to be perfect human beings or people with any agency. Cause I know, uh, Dalton definitely has zero agency. I mean, he's he's got uh, Cliff taking care of him. Um, so I I I am I don't mind the characterization of Cliff as as much as um, Clayton does. Well, let's let's keep talking I, about the actors for a bit. I, mean, I want to. I just want to touch on something real quick. I just I, I honestly I'm just kind of mystified by the characterization of of Cliff Booth as a shitty human being. Like I don't see him do anything in the movie. In my opinion, that is categorically 
irredeemable. I mean, like the idea that that a man that a an acquaintance, a professional acquaintance's wife believes that he killed his wife does not mean that he killed his wife. I mean, and the movie does not prove or demonstrate that in any way. I mean, I mean, and and the idea that him him agreeing to fight Bruce Lee does not make him a shitty human being. And quite frankly, even brutally slaying the three Manson family people does not make him a shitty human being to me. And I don't know. And but but more more uh, maybe importantly to me, I'm not sure that 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 the um, the the qualities of an individual, even if he were, let's say he was the Daniel Plainview of this movie, that he was this a completely horrible human being who had destroyed his own soul in search of whatever it was, a great career as a stuntman. I'm not sure that that a satisfying ending would be reached by giving him a a a, a karmic retribution at the end or having him answer for whatever his transgressions were. I mean, yeah. I, w- I would agree on the, the karmic retribution not being needed, but I, I don't know. I think, I think uh, from, from my perspective, I mean, I could see why some may not think that he's, you know, that there's nothing in the film itself, like visually saying that this person is a shitty person. But then again, I mean, then, Part of it's also on Tarantino putting in this just random throwaway line, as Clayton said, about like this guy basically get away with killing his wife. You know, there's just I I, I think there's something that's actually deeply troubling about that. Um, that's how Hollywood works too, and like just putting out a rumor out there, and it just kind of sticks, like regardless of the, the validity of it at that but, point. But 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 they but and the, the big difference between like a Daniel Plainview and Brad Pitt. Paul Thomas Anderson is well aware that Daniel Plainview is a bad human being and depicts him as such. Whereas here, you're saying that we have no proof, but yet we we are given the scene of Brad Pitt on a boat with a woman that is cursing at him and just like like fighting with him, with him with a harpoon in his la- in his lap, pointing straight at her, and then cut away. And then DiCaprio would be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I mean, it's a it's a provocative piece of imagery, but that's that's Tarantino's style compared to Anderson. Anderson's giving but, you something more layered on a different approach. Where Tarantino I, mean, I just is, don't I, I just think we'll be giving like I think we'd be giving Tarantino too much credit if, yes, or any yeah. or too much of a pass by saying, like, that didn't mean that he killed his wife. Like, we don't know. Like, I think it's I'm saying there's shade. I'm saying there's shades of gray there. Sure. <laughs> well, I'm just suggesting that that I mean, like moral relativism is a dead end when it comes to a movie like this. I mean, like I, I mean, that's I, I, it, it doesn't even matter. I mean, like even if they said that he had killed his wife, I he is clearly meant to be one of the film's protagonists. And so I think the idea is that we either have to accept that he is, which comes with the legend that is built in, that is baked into him, that he was a Vietnam veteran. And that. Uh, and uh, when I interviewed Mike Moe, he described him as a person who had, uh, he described Cliff Booth as a person who had killed many men with his bare hands. And I don't know if that was in Vietnam. I don't know where, what part of the script that was, that came from, because they don't mm. say anything like that in the, in the movie. But the idea is that we have, we must accept at least for the purposes of Tarantino's story that he is our hero. And so if you think that he's a shitty human being based on the behavior you see on screen or what you know about him that he came from the script or anything else, I think that's totally fine, but I don't think that's a very interesting way to look at the movie just as just to go back to it, the idea of the number of lines that Margot Robbie has as Sharon Tate is not that is not in any way 
a satisfying or even really intelligent way to evaluate the merits of a performance or a character in a movie. I mean, there's tons of characters in movies that have almost no lines or who are in very little of it who make such a tremendous imp- impression. I mean, you, you, you can go to, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter and, and characters like that. I mean, there's, you know, tons and tons and tons of characters who do not have a lot of dialogue or a lot of scenes who are, are indelible presences in movies. And the purpose of Sharon Tate in this movie, for example, was not to be like a active participatory character, but to give her the opportunity on film that she did not have in life, which is to continue to just sort of exist and to witness the people around her in a movie theater enjoying her performance and just continue to sort of live and do her normal everyday things that was robbed from her by the Manson family. And so I don't know. I'm the, the, I, I, uh, I'm fascinated by the conversations around this movie, not just here, but the ones I've seen on social media and elsewhere that are built upon these ideas of, 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 um, I don't know, like whether these, whether these people are good or not to me, isn't really relevant. I mean, it's not a movie about, about whether these people are good or not. I mean, you know, Rick is, he's a, he's a washed up alcoholic, you know I mean? He's a guy who thinks that going to Italy is going to be a, you know, the, the last gasp of his career. You know I mean? This is a guy who, you know, these are not people who are on, you know, on top or who are, who are conventional heroes in any way, but they are people who are wrestling with the idea that the world has passed them by and, and that, um, they no longer have relevance and that they are obsolete. And that's what the movie's about to me. And so the idea that he gets this opportunity in the end, Rick in the end of the movie gets an opportunity to, you know, potentially reclaim some degree of his, um, his coolness or, or his, his relevance in this moment of having a drink with Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring in their house to me is like all that the movie's about. It's, it's, it's not a, like to me, I, I, I the idea that it is, all those things that we were talking about earlier, that it's meandering or that it drags or that it may be overlong, like all those things are in service of that idea. And so I can understand, I totally understand why it's frustrating for some people who watch the movie to think that it's overlong or pointless or it doesn't make sense or these other things because, because most movies are not like Tarantino's movies. And that's why we love Tarantino's movies is because he follows his own muse and he does what he wants. And he, and it's not about him going, well, I'm going to tell a conventional three-act structured film that's about this, 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 and happening in this way, and it unfolds in a very satisfying and safe way. He, you know, takes chances. I read an interview that, or I read a, an excerpt from an interview that he did where he characterized this as his sort of version of, of Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which was, that was very much about Cuaron's upbringing in a time that was very special and magical to him and that's exactly what tarantino did with this movie for better or for worse i mean again it doesn't mean that that everybody has to like the movie or think it's good or think it's successful but it is what it is and i think that wrestling with it on the terms of what it is as opposed to what it either isn't or what it should be is i don't know it just it it feels reductive and 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 or, or unproductive in terms of like determining what what its merits actually are if that makes sense i'm sorry to have gone on long but you're good yeah, yeah, I'm good. I, I feel like you're venting a lot on reaction, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know, and I know that's been there. I know there's been a lot of talk about just the things that are, just the very implication of things based off the concept of this movie. There was a lot of speculation going in about like how he would choose to handle Sharon Tate and the Manson stuff versus what actually happens in the film. And obviously, I'm much more interested in what actually happens in the film. And we have been speaking to that for the most part, so I'm fine, I'm fine with that. Um, well, with all that said, let's. 
as I was trying to do, let's shift gears a bit to talk a bit about some individual things before we wrap up this review because we've been going on for a bit. Um, from a performance perspective, we spoke we, we spoke a lot about Cliff as his character. Where, where are you guys on Brad Pitt's performance as this as this role? Like Clayton, where do you, what do you think about Brad Pitt's work in this film? Uh, I think he's very good. I think it, uh, uh, I think he's definitely committed. I think he plays a suave, you know, laid back, you know, re- really really well. Um, I think his scene in particular with, uh, his exchange with Dakota Fanning is particularly, uh, impressive. Um, and his, uh, dialogue with Bruce Stern as well. Um, which that scene became even a little more just sad because you just know that Burt Reynolds was supposed to play that role. So then yeah. you just become like hyper aware of it. Um, but no, I think Brad, I think Brad Pitt's actually very, very good. I actually think it's, it's something that it's going to be kind to him during the season. Uh, during the award season, I think it's something that's going to bring him some attention and some 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 clout. So I mean, it'll be, it'll be it interesting does, to watch. Whether or not it does, I mean, I agree with you. I, I I actually would say this might maybe, if not his best, one of his best performances, just given everything that he's kind of putting into it here and what he's good at doing, where he can play comedy, I think, quite well. But I think Tarantino seems to really understand how to best use him and how to use his sense of delivery for these kinds of roles, where it's not as like Inglorious Bastards is a very showy role for him to do, where this feels in a different direction, but still feels effective in how he's choosing to choosing to use his lines, use his delivery, use his face to kind of give you a sense of who this guy is and how he talk, how he how he addresses other people depending on the circumstance. But I mean, you know, the thing for me about Brad Pitt's performance in the movie is that how effortless he makes it. You know, I mean, you know, it's funny. I was I was talking about another actor in another movie recently where I, where I was talking about the fact that it didn't look like he was doing anything on screen whenever I watched him. I was like, every movie I see this guy and it looks like he's just kind of standing around like he wandered on a set, um, you know. But but the thing about about Brad Pitt is that his performances, I mean, they feel really substantive to me, but they also feel like they're they're just there and they're and they they completely are, are in the world and in the moment. You know, watching him, I mean, he he's another, I mean, it's funny because he has dialogue, but he doesn't have that much dialogue himself. And he just kind of sits there and he's like reacting and he seems to, you know, he's fighting his own little battles in terms of his career. But it's like, you know, watching him kind of like eat, eat shit, you know, to go fix the TV antenna on his, you know, the, the actor that he plays as stuntman's like roof during the day because he doesn't have any other job. I mean, you know, it's like, that's pretty humiliating. And, um, and, and, you know, he, he sort of accepts it, if not cheerfully, then, you know, at least sort of, you know, benevolently, um, you know, and I think that's kind of, a, I just think that, I don't know, is a performance that I was really stricken by because I was like, I was like, man, he just commands the screen and he doesn't have to do a damn thing. It's not just the fact that he's, you know, 55 years old and more handsome than, than I'll ever be, you know. Robert, where, where are you with Pitt's overall performance here? Oh yeah, I think it's he's fantastic. I think I think it's his best performance. Is um, Clayton and Todd have already said like just his charm, his ease that he just delivers his lines, and he he finds great bits of comedy in moments where it doesn't feel like there should be comedy there, like the Bruce Dern scene. Um, and I don't know. I, I wish I I could read that because I don't know if it reads off the page as being funny, but the way that he just exists within that moment and he's just able to breathe within a scene um, and react off his, uh, his co-stars is just amazing. I mean, I think some of my favorite scenes 
or when he's driving around with uh, Rick Dalton in the car and they keep seeing um, um, Qualey's character uh, and just the, the little moments that he's reacting to her as Dalton is talking in the background. I, I love those moments. I, I think you very much get that, the idea that he's just existing within this space and he's not saying a word, but he just consumes the scene. What what about um? Let's talk about DiCaprio a bit. We've talked a lot about everyone but DiCaprio, who's ostensibly the, the lead of this movie. But uh, obviously, it's the most sh- it's the showier of the roles as far as all the things he's required to do. I think Tarantino has a great hand, like much like it seems like. I mean, as much as Scorsese's really kind of taken to him in various films, there's a lot Quinn's able to get out of him in this as a kind of a ball of stress, just panicking and delivering on his insecurities and what have you in both this and Django. Um, but, but what about him here? I mean, I, I, I mean, I think I thought he was great. Uh, I mean, you know, Robert mentioned it earlier. I mean, he was talking about uh, his performance and I thought I was in agreement that I, I feel like, um, you know, he does a great job of, 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 you know, playing, I think, genuine pathos, like th- there's something almost silly about how he sort sort of starts like crying at the beginning because he's, you know, he's like, oh, this guy basically just told me I'm washed up and I'm, I'm done. And, you know, and it, and it seems sort of ridiculous. I mean, you're like, this guy's just a, is a TV actor. And at that time, just a TV actor, which does not certainly carry the same prestige that that uh, it does today. Um you know, but but the idea that he turns that, you know, you have this moment, this beautiful moment that he has with this, you know, young actress while he's waiting on the set. And, you know, he's talking about a story in this in this book that he's reading that, you know, I'm not sure that he even quite it takes him a few minutes to realize that he's talking as much about himself as, you know, as he's talking about the characters in this book. And I think that, like, that's a testament to DiCaprio's abilities that like he can really make it seem believable that this guy, you know, has, you know, sort of this really sharp self-awareness that he can like swear off alcohol and then 10 seconds later, take a drink and, you know, and, and just have those kind of moments that you walk through that are, that speak to theme and to sort of the overall story. And yet, you know, he's not a guy who's like, I'm going to read the subtext of this scene right now. And then I'm going to go to the next scene. I'm going to do the same thing. It's, you know, I mean, there is a he he clearly very genuinely cares for Cliff Booth, but he also is a guy who likes the feeling of, I think, not being in charge, but like having something sort of being over on this guy. And so, you know, I don't think he's doing it to be spiteful, but it's like he's kind of reached a point where he's sort of taken that for granted. And the difference between Leonardo DiCaprio's character and Brad Pitt's is that Brad Pitt, under, he knows what's happening and he accepts it anyway, you know, whereas you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, where Rick Dalton is, he's trying to fight against, you know, time, um, you know, and it's only like in those sort of very small moments of self-recognition that, you know, the little girl's like, oh, it's like, you know, time moves on and forgets about you and you get old. And he's like, yeah, that's going to happen to you too. You know I mean? It's like these years. Yeah. It's like these, <laughs> these funny little observations. Um, but I thought, I mean, I think he gives a great performance. I mean, I always thought he deserved an Oscar for, for, uh, for Django. And I think that like, that was, one of those, and uh, Clayton, you might be able to speak to this even better than I, uh, certainly I could about, you know, the politics of nominating and, and I, Weinstein, I know, got behind um, Christoph Waltz. And, and I think as a consequence, like he got sort of sidelined in that in that role. But um, but uh, I, I just think he's he's so good when when they work together. And I think that Tarantino gives him a great character and he gives it everything he's got. 
I want to focus on that a bit before we kind of move to other actors and other things about the film. The the whole sequences involving DiCaprio's basically the second day of this film where he's on set and they're filming these Western scenes. Uh, I mean, Clayton, you spoke to the idea of people not getting the the stuff about the Manson family. I wonder how many people are going to have any kind of nostalgic joy in seeing these Western TV series come to life, which is certainly something from a bygone era. Uh, you know, it's it's not... It's not Lion King. It's not Nostalgia Fest from the 90s. This is stuff coming out of the, the 50s and 60s. But, I mean, as one that's... I've merely watched some, like, reruns on TV every now and then or whatnot. It, I, I was just eating it all up as far as seeing this kind of stuff come to life. And just the way he chose to film it. Where you have these sequences playing where he's saying his lines of Timothy Oliphant or who have you. And the way Tarantino's chosen to film those scenes are basically how he would film those scenes... And we have like unseen cameras filming him and there's likely takes being taken, but it all, it all plays as kind of one long extended sequence. Do you guys have any thoughts on how he chose to kind of handle this part of DiCaprio's life in this film? Oh, no, that, I think that's where the film is at its best is when any I'm telling you, anytime DiCaprio is on on set is, is great. I mean, I especially love. <laughs> him asking for when he's like line and he's like, all right, bring it back to one. And the camera pans back around and, and starts up again. Like that, 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 was, my, just... that was my girlfriend's favorite shot of the film. Oh right? my God. It goes it... back and then it goes and resets. Like, it's, Oh yeah. my God. It was, it was, it was, it was brilliant. I'm telling you that there's, there are things here that uh, like was, I feel like was made for, for so many, for, for all of us. And it made me want to, you know, I started looking on Amazon Prime today, see if I can find like reruns Lancer. of FBI and stuff. <laughs> and, so, you know, to see what I can watch, you know, because because it makes you curious about it because you're like, you know, I remember some, you know, I, I'm, you know, I grew up in New York. So I just remember like uh, WPIX, you know, the WB Frog. And then they would have like old TV shows once in a while that they would show. So I was like, and I remember when Nick at night didn't have friends on it and it was actually showing old shows and you know, that you can, you can watch. So yeah, I think his respect for the the time period is, is evident and profound and, and it will light a fire under you to want to seek it out. And I think, I mean, I think that's where his greatest accomplishment lies. I mean, it's a big part of the film for me, as far as what I liked is he's had, his other modern day set films have people, you know, making references and what have you to a, a certain time period. And what I really like about this film, and what I like about something Tarantino seems like to have challenged himself with in general, is well, he, be, you know, he shot out the gate with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, which have a lot of pop culture references and things, and that's a big part of what people thought was cool. It's like people talking about movies that I've seen and what have you, or things, and that's that's a neat thing. In the you know, Inglorious Bastards on. He's he's found a way to kind of take that take that aspect away from his movies and still, you know, deliver on writing dialogue that's either whip smart or just engrossing in some way. And here now he's, you know, he's set in the time period of the things that people are referencing in those 90s films, which I, I thought was just a really interesting way to go with it, where you have dialogue that might not have the same kind of snappiness that you find in some of the earlier Tarantino films, but it's it's people acting as who they are being the people that other people are going to talk about in his films later on, which I, again, which is why I find the film so introspective on his part, as far as what he's doing, examining his own career, examining the ways he's done things in the past and putting it into his, this giant hodgepodge of a movie. I mean, Todd, you you, you saying that Tarantino thought of this as his Roma. That makes a lot of sense to me as far as how he's choosing to regard what he has as a history, what he sees as a history and what he sees as how he wants to, 
show that to other people in a way that makes sense to him as far as how to kind of delve into this side of things as well as what could have been if things were different and how he could have you know possibly gone a different route as it were if things, if things transpired in a different way based off tra- uh, chance meetings and what have you for sure and you know i agree completely with clayton about you know the characterization of the show um and and how it inspires you to want to go back and watch those those old those old shows i mean it's it's uh, you know i think um you know one of the uh, the articles i i uh, you know he you know working with robert richardson on the on in the movie you know which who's he worked with since um kill bill you know he did this really interesting thing to me which is when you look at the movie it doesn't feel like it's 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 his typical directing style in terms of the movement of the camera but it, it but it is aiming to recreate in this sort of beautiful halcyon kind of very authentic way sort of the the feeling of that era without trying to amplify it in an overly you know cinematic way and so you know by comparison um to you know his other movies that use all that kind of blown out super saturated color um they they will um uh, you know, this movie feels much more understated, but as a result, I think it feels much more realistic and believable. And, um, and then, you know, when he does those other, the Western TV series, I think like that's Tarantino actually trying to sort of sneak a Western into the middle of this movie. That's about Hollywood, you know? And so he does have those great little moments of resetting and those things that he kind of breaks it. It's breaking the fourth wall to sort of break that process. And at the same time, sort of indulge it at the same time. So you end up with this great thing where you have, you know, um, business Bob Gilbert and you have these showdowns and you have James Stacy and you have these other people who, um, who are, you know, some of whom are real and some of whom are, whom aren't and you have that great element and then you have you know a set that that set where where he shoots that scene he has to redo that 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 uh that shot a bunch of times um one of the things i noticed was that the set design literally the like the way the stairs go down in the middle of the room and then sort of take a left like i was like i think that's i think that was inspired by rio bravo because the hotel that um that the character um that that Angie Dickinson's character has in that, in that movie has, it has a layout exactly like that. I, you know, and um, Robert Richardson like later confirmed that or whatever, um, which is just sort of a fun. And to me, that's, I think one of the most fun parts. Um, and uh, you know, Clayton, you mentioned like the fact that Natalie Wood thing, um, that's something I honestly didn't even, did not occur to me until, until you mentioned it, you know, and it's like discovering things like that, I think is one of the most engrossing and enriching parts of his movies is, is finding and rediscovering, um, those little references and, and sources of inspiration that, you know, quite frankly, few other, few other filmmakers wear as, 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 as vividly on their sleeve. Um, and you know, which I think shows up again and again in the, in the Western TV show scenes from the TV point of view and the Western. Before we carry on, I know Clayton, you unfortunately you have, you have to take off. Um, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I have to have to have to drop off. But I I do uh, th- thank you for that shout out, by the way. Um, yeah. And and um, I think I think you guys for for having me having me today. I have to actually meet with uh, Senator Bob Menendez tomorrow, oh. so <laughs> okay. have to go uh, have to go do stuff in D.C. and try to like not have the world come to an end. Well. Be- before you take off any final <laughs> thoughts on the film um i 
I, I know, despite all my criticism, it may sound like I hate it. I don't. Um, I actually do like it. I mean, I, I think uh, in particular the, the things that I'm going to be really excited about to watch this uh, play out through the, the rest of the year. Um, I'm going to be really excited when Ariane Phillips, the costume designer, wins an Academy Award because I think this is the best stuff she's ever done. Uh, the production design is out of this world, and I think, you know, pending whatever <laughs> – cats gives us you know i think uh i think this would be good for tarantino's film to, to get cited there um and again i think this is leo's best work and i would be a hard it, it, like if, if i think anyone's better than him this year for lead actor then we we've got a an all-time lineup great well clayton where can people find more of your work online uh, follow me at Award Circuit. Uh, you can visit me at awardcircuit.com. That's where I have uh, reviews and stuff. And then uh, you can catch me podcasting on Circuit Breaker uh, each and every week. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Glad to have you here. No, um, good hanging out with you guys. Sure. Yeah, great talking to you. Yeah, great. great. And uh, now, you, now you can talk about all the great, great stuff that you love about the film after I'm off. Then yeah. Yeah, we've secretly <laughs> planned this to get yeah. all this out of the way so we can just raise it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just... glad... <laughs> Thank you very it's much for joining it. us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get you back next time. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. All right. Uh, well, while Clayton is exited, we can still talk about some other things. I mean, we, we were talking about performances a bit. Robert, where where are you with uh, with Margot Robbie's presence in this film? Um, I, I really, I really love Margot Robbie's presence. I mean, I, we, I think we talked earlier about the, the theater scene and I, next to the, um, the Dalton scene with the, the young actress, I think that's the second best scene of the film. Um, I do think that Margot Robbie's able to get so much characterization so much pathos for Sharon Tate that even with the limited amount of lines I've I only today was really thinking about okay how many lines does Margot Robbie have because it did it, it didn't really feel like it mattered in the end um, and then, let me let me let me stop real quick just to mention like the the reason we, this has come up is because there was a, catch, a question at the Cannes Film Festival when the film premiered directed towards Tarantino addressing the fact that Margot Robbie did not have any lines which he basically just denied the fact that this question even mattered. Um, and I believe Robbie gave an answer as well. But that's that's why this has kind of come up as far as the conversation surrounding her character as far as lines go. Because honestly, like, I, I don't... I'm not sure if anyone would ever talk about the... Specifically the nature of how many lines she has if that was not a factor into kind of what came into this film from the beginning, from the get-go. That is why to provide some context yeah. for people that wasn't. Yeah, yeah, for right? sure. You know, no, and, and and you know, I mean, to be fair, uh, at least to, to accurately represent, you know, what happened at Cannes was, I believe Tarantino just said, "I reject your hypothesis." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and which you know was perhaps a too succinct um, response for people not to read more into it than they should have. You know, um, but. But, you know, Margot Robbie, I think I think gave she gave a very thoughtful answer about what kind of performance she was aiming to give with the role and and in the character. Um, And, you know, again, I think that she's supposed to be, you know, this innocent, wholesome spirit, not of not only of Hollywood, but of the 60s, you know, that was, you know, on on the precipice of of being, 
you know, snuffed out, uh, you know, obviously, uh, tragically in her case, uh, literally, but, but the idea that, you know, as the counterculture sort of moved into the mainstream and all these other elements, you know, I think that's a really interesting thing that the movie is exploring as well. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, that's, that's actually what I'm, I'm so fascinated with and, and why I've actually paid so much attention. It's not just like the reactions, um, that I don't, that it's like, oh, I think reactions are stupid as much as it's like, I like the, that there are conversations that are being had about this movie from so many different angles. But I also sure. think that it's like, yeah. we have, but to me, it's more, uh, un- I, unfortunately, because I'm very nerdy and, and, and spend uh, too much time by myself and not talking enough, talking to people like you like you guys, um, that I sit around and I'm like, I'm like, well, you know, why are we looking at this? What is it? What, what makes it important? And why is it not important? And all those other kinds of things. And, and, you know, trying to wrestle with what something is rather than what we want it to be, I think is, is often a challenge because I think we watch a lot of movies where we're like, Oh, this movie would have been perfect if only they had done this, or I thought this character deserved better, or I thought this character deserved worse. And it's like, well, you know, we, I think we, I think accepting, um, the choices that are made uh, in creative endeavors is something that, um, we're wrestling with in a larger cultural way, which again, I think goes back to the, how amazingly resonant and thought provoking this movie is, whether or not you like it. Going back to, um, you were referencing about just the period and everything that's happening and the moment about the sixties ending. Um, I, I think the other thing I also love about that DiCaprio scene with, you know, going to the Westerns and with his young co-star, um, is how much of that is such, uh, a demonstration of two different schools of acting from the method acting that's like clearly has been in, in that period would have been rising in Hollywood for a few years and the method actors really taking over and then you have Dalton which doesn't who doesn't appear to be method he's reading a book on on the set yeah. rather than staying in character and also just the idea that you know we're in the middle of the 60s and the studio system in itself is ending and it's not just Dalton's career. That Dalton, in some ways, is a personification of the studio system. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, <laughs> you finished that thought. I I agree as well. Um, <laughs> any? <laughs> I think what else we can cover here? Any other performances that stand out as far as the film's concerned? I mean, there's a lot of we have a lot of cast members, but I and I, I mean, it brings me back to. When you when you question how much Sharon Tate has to do in this film, it's like there's so many people in this film that equally have little to do because it very much is the Cliff Rick story. Yeah. Um, well, okay. you know, one of the things I know um, uh, when I interviewed Mike Moe, the, the the actor who played Bruce Lee, you know, I mean, he was saying that he was like, I didn't even know if I was going to end up in the final movie. And, you know, <laughs> and I mean, like, I don't think there was it, it, he didn't shoot. I mean, Tarantino did not shoot this like a Terrence Malick movie. It wasn't like he was like, I'm going to have three, 300 characters and then I'll see what I want to put together. Like, I think, you know, but but um, As he we said, all know only Tim Roth was cut. Since yeah. He's yeah. Name checked in the credits. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's a, you know, I mean, I think that, I mean, and th- this is the other sort of thing, especially after having watched the movie is that the idea that like Mar- that Margaret, Robbie, I understand that she is a principal cast member and one of the most important, but like, you know, I don't really feel like there's that many characters that are, that have that many lines in general outside of like the main two guys. I mean, this is really Rick and Cliff's stories. And so the rest of the characters, I mean, like, you know, Margaret Qualley, she's sort of a fascinating little, you know, uh, a little sidebar, but I mean, like, 
you know, half of her performance is her hitchhiking. You know, I mean, you know, it's like, and you know, and and, and she's a means are, to an ends to a point too, where she's she's a, a way to get Brad Pitt to to spawn Ranch, which yeah. you know affects yeah. the rest of the story. Like, it's, she's a device more than a character, for sure, for sure. And there's a there's a really fascinating. I mean, I just think that's what's interesting again about the movie as a whole is that like it creates this real sprawling tapestry of different characters at this time who are doing different things. Um, and you know, I think that it creates an atmosphere and a flavor of the, of the time period and the people and their attitudes. And that's really what it's trying to do. The movie's not like, I'm going to create the most vivid portrayal of Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds you've ever seen with fake names. I mean, cause that's what they're at least largely inspired by. Um, you know, I mean, Burt Reynolds was a wash up by the end of the sixties and he went to Italy to do, um, Navajo Joe for Sergio Corbucci. And, you know, the movie was terrible. Um, you know, I mean, and he, you know, and then he found a new career in the seventies as a different kind of actor. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and how, of course, went on to be a, the famous director of Smoking the Bandit and these other movies, these car, you know, but he was a famous stuntman. And it's like, clearly Tarantino is not interested in creating like a perfectly accurate one. I think again, that, that's why I use the term magic realism. To me, that felt like uh, the, 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 the most um, uh, accurate way to describe what the movie is aimed I mean, for. Yeah, he's also not, he's not making a biopic. I mean, he's making something that's rewarding to himself as far as an original feature, which I think is more rewarding than seeing some like a Burt Reynolds Hal Needham biopic. I mean, that could be yeah. something, but at the same yeah, time, sure. it by doing it this way, along especially because he's able to mix up history a bit, it it allows him to kind of in, I mean indulge himself at a level of having a lot of fun with this time period and showing you a lot of different things from very specific perspectives. And also I, without I, running the risk of, of embarrassing, you know, I mean, again, sure, we can yeah. argue about whether or not, you know, Bruce Lee is portrayed as a buffoon or embarrassed in this movie. I don't believe that he is. I mean, I think, and I think that his, I would agree with you that you said earlier, you know, his legend is durable enough that we can, you know, poke fun at him a little bit without it being like a destroy a destruction of his character. But, you know, it's like if you're going to paint a real like Burt Reynolds was not known in his life for being like a reasonable um, or reasonably um, self-aware person in terms of his behavior. I mean, you know, there were lots of people who did not like him and he did not like them. And the idea of, of creating a version of Burt Reynolds on screen that was not Burt Reynolds, um, you know, who could be as flawed and as messed up as, as Rick Dalton is, I think is a freedom that Tarantino knew he was going to be able to enjoy rather than, I don't think he ever would have made a movie that was just about how native and Burt Reynolds, but it's like, there's a difference when he's like, oh, yeah, no, Burt Reynolds is going to be in the movie playing this old guy on top of, you know, the fact that the main two actors are going to play a version of him. And it's not going to be that flattering. You know, I mean, you know, it's that, that kind of thing. So he had the freedom to do what he wanted. I I mentioned already that I, I in addition, because I, I mentioned that in my review as well, the, the Burt Needham, but the, 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 the Burt Reynolds-Hal Needham connection. But the film also being feeling like an extension of Tarantino himself as far as what what these characters are standing for. And Robert, you already brought this up as far as Rick Dalton being like the last vestiges of the studio system in a sense. Uh, Robert, do you, do you see anything in that as far as mainly because you've, you, I mean, we've talked about it already as far as this being Tarantino putting his own personality into so much of this. Do, do you see these characters as being something he's specifically putting himself into? Yeah. I mean, for sure. The, the Dalton character is the most obvious one of that you know, being Tarantino, who is sort of at the crossroads of his career, 
Um, and whether he's going to hang it up or whether he's going to keep on going or whether he should, in in some ways, um, reinvent himself. And it, it's almost kind of ironic because it feels sometimes once once upon a time feels like a reinvention of Tarantino and his style, and if it, it feels like um, a smoothing out of his style, which I think we've talked about before. Um, and so to see that. <laughs> moment the moment i always go back to is 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 dalton when um when his young co-star whispers in his ear i think that was the most amazing performance i've ever seen Mm -hmm. in dalton like breaks out there's a part of it that's almost there's almost this melancholic but it's also funny in a way you know and i it's when when i every single time i think about that scene i'm trying to think of it through and maybe this this is a mistake on my part but i'm trying to think about it through Tarantino and just almost like you know the the wistful artist that's hoping for their work to be seen hoping for the work to be understood um and in some ways that that is Rick Dalton you know where I'm, the Pacino scene where uh his character is you know very much going through Rick Dalton's past roles and you know praising them even if they might have been one was like a, a B action film you know and that that's just enough for for Dalton to say well yeah I'll go to Italy and I'll make this spaghetti western that I don't really believe in but okay yeah um, well I was gonna I, I would add to that um, you know I feel like um, there is uh, you know, I, Tarantino said a long time ago that he didn't want to keep making movies until he was like 90 as much as anything, because he didn't want to make what he called old man movies, you know, which were these, <laughs> these films, you know, made by these veteran filmmakers that ended up being these sort of elegaic looks at their career or their lives or life in general. And, you know, and, and what's really interesting to me is that, you know, people sort of characterize, I saw somebody else say this it, when it had sort of started percolating in my head is that this to me feels like a middle-aged man movie, you know, which is, which is younger than Tarantino is, but it is a movie. And as a person who is, uh, uh, since Clayton is not here right now, I'm definitively the oldest person on this, um, (laughs) you know, but you know, as a, who's been working as a journalist for, for, you know, 19 years in Los Angeles and a few years before that, um, you know, I think that I do my job well and I feel confident about it, but I mean that I, like many people that I know who are my age, my friends and colleagues, you know, we, we have moments where we wonder if we're doing what we're meant to do or if we're still good or if what we do resonates with anybody or anybody cares and, you know, and whether or not any of that stuff, even if we feel like we're good at it, if it makes any difference whatsoever. And, you know, it wasn't something that I feel like I was very consciously thinking about during the movie. I wasn't sitting there going, ah, yes, he has told my life story and my, my, you know, my challenge as a white man, and this is really what I deal with. Um, you know, but it was a situation where I was like, I find this very relatable, um, especially in retrospect, uh, just thinking about the, the variety of, uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and again, it, he makes the joke to the, to the little girl about, you know, in 15 years, you're going to be, you know, sh- shoved out the door for, for some, some, you know, young little actress who's going to be good or better than her, you know? And, and, um, I don't know. I think that's, that to me is, again, it enhances sort of the substance of the movie because you have, you know, it, it allows you to project upon all those driving scenes. It's like, you know, I mean, you know, Brad Pitt, of course, he's impossibly beautiful and he picks up Margaret Qualley, who is also beautiful. And she's like, you know, do you want to have sex? 
you know, I'll suck your dick while you're driving the car or whatever it is. And he's just kind of like, and I'm like, you know, that is, that is a, I think there is this element in the scene of like, this is a guy who is past his own um, relevance, who is still, you know, seen as virile and youthful and attractive to, to this young girl, which is very appealing to him for a guy who drives home and spends his nights with his dog and lives in a shitty, you know, trailer behind a, a drive-in it's, movie. It's that, it's that McConaughey character in Days Confused. Yeah. I mean, it's the same yeah. kind and of it, thing. It, yeah. I mean, it's like kind of pathetic, but it's also something that clearly feeds his ego a little bit, you know, but at the same time, like he's responsible enough to get, not to get himself into trouble, you know? So it's a, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a, like I, I really like the reflective nature of the movie. And I would say that it's by far his most reflective, um, you know, because again, uh, like going back to sort of that characterization of it is like sort of his Roma, like that it is very much about like, these are all the things that inspired and influenced me and impacted me as an individual, as a kid. And it's not just a compendium of, of background details that he likes. I mean, God knows I ate fruit root cereal when I was a little kid, you know, but but I mean, like that to me was exciting when I watched Pulp Fiction in 1994. What's really exciting to me in 2019 is watching this movie and going like, wow, you know, the idea that like people experience these feelings of obsolescence and fear of losing their relevance um, at a point when they're working in Hollywood, you know, which I which obviously is a fictionalization. But it is just a truism that people go through. This is something that I find much more um, connective uh, to me as a viewer, um, you know, than, than, than being able to identify the, the crazy Eskimo, um, cartoon that, uh, that honey bunny or no, sorry. Um, uh, what's, uh, what's, you know, what Maria Dimitaris is, is, uh, is watching in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You the know, other Eric, the yeah. Eric Stoltz is the other person in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, so as we as we've been doing this, I've added Abe um, to the call here. Abe, how are you doing? Hey guys. Hey. Abe, you're here. You're here with Todd and 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 Robert here. I ran so Clayton Robert, off. I have to. Aaron, you know, uh, I have to apologize because I think I ran him off. I don't think he had to leave. He was like, I've just had enough of that guy. <laughs> I understand. But, you know. <laughs> well, as we uh, as we kind of finish our thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Abe, I, I just wanted to. I know you're gonna you're gonna hit us with a game in a bit here, but uh, any any general thoughts you want to go over with the film? You know, in general, uh, I thought it was fine. I thought that there was a lot of um, a lot of ins for all the Hollywood knowledgeable folks like you guys, and also a lot of ins for the Tarantino friends. Um, I think that there was a, a a lot of care and craft with the selection of songs, the scene selection, the the technical aspects of it is really really well done. Um, like it looks great. I think he used a lot of crane shots in this movie. Um, the way that he made some of the freeways look, I was like, wow, I wonder how they, they just shut down like the 405 for this. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. It's it's one of those stories where I think it meanders at some points, too. Um, but ultimately, it's weird because as much as I, I was liking the pace so far of just thinking to myself, well, it's kind of just a story about the day in the life of, you know, uh, a Hal Needham type character and also like a Burt Reynolds type character. Um, there's like a weird like crescendo toward the end there. And I was like, as much as I'm enjoying this, it, it's kind of also coming out of left field here. Like I do enjoy the action packedness of the ending. And I also enjoy, you know, a prop being used from one of uh, Leo's movies, but 
it is it is strange that uh, I felt as though there was um, it was kind of like serene like and and strangely tense at some scenes, uh, and then it just goes a little bit off the off the 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 rails, not in a bad way necessarily, but just like oh wow, I wasn't expecting like this this flourish of an ending, but. On the whole, I think that it's uh, it's fine. Yeah, I, I, I like I didn't outright love it, but I also didn't dislike it. I mean, the pictures that came to mind were also something like Hail Caesar, where it's like kind of about nothing I as Hail well. Caesar too. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's like I thought it's like kind of about nothing as well, but at the same time, you know, when they made those, when they had the shots of the movies and whatever else, like they they kind of made it stylistically look at that, where the colors really popped out and whatever else. And then I also thought about, you know, Inherent Vice and Nice Guys, where there was just some dialogue that I felt like uh, the other two handled a little bit better. Um, and lastly, I thought it was some Wes Anderson films. And I was like, I don't think Tarantino's trying to do a Wes Anderson type thing here with some of the dialogue. But, um, you know, there was just some bits where I was like, oh, well, good, good try. So it was fine. Well, thanks for a succinct recap of your thoughts on the film <laughs> while, while Todd, Robert, Clayton, and I have been rambling on for a couple hours here. <laughs> but um, uh, as, as we wrap up this review, what, the way we like to do things uh, on this show is asking people, uh, when should people go and see this movie? So, so, Todd, with that in mind, when should people go and see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, I think they should see it as soon as possible. I mean, I th- you know, I mean, I, I, it was shot, the film was shot in 35 millimeter. So, I, mm-hmm. so if you are able to see it on 35 millimeter, not only is that um, sufficient, that is, is fully represents the the actual execution of the movie. I mean, seeing it in 70 millimeter is a is a rare delight, but um, but the movie would be blown up to 70 millimeter for its release as opposed to shot in 70 millimeter like um, Hateful Eight was. But as long as it's in theaters right now and you have an opportunity to see it, especially on film, I uh, absolutely encourage that. And as soon as possible, because what I have found, irrespective uh, you know, of, of the individual responses, is that people seem to be going to see it and then they want to go see it again to, to explore it more and to be fascinated by it. And you know, as well as it did this weekend, it seems like the kind of movie that may or may not have legs because of that polarizing reaction. So you may only have a limited opportunity to get out there and, and to see it while, while it's still in theaters. Hmm. Robert, when should people go and see this movie? Yeah, I would agree immediately, especially if there's, um, I would agree, especially if there's a 35 millimeter cut of it. Um, and even if it's only a seven, quote, unquote, only a 70 millimeter cut of it, because I think they're only five or six theaters in the country playing in 70 millimeter. Yeah. Um, one and one is in Chicago and there's also one in Chicago playing it in 35 as well. So if you're in Chicago, 35 millimeter at Logan theater and then 70 millimeter at the music box, the historic music box theater. Did you get to see it in 35 or 70? I'm sorry. I saw it in 70. I haven't seen it in 35. Oh, My second watch is going to be in 35. Yeah. I saw it for Todd and I were both at the same press screening, which was the 35 millimeter screening. And yeah, I saw it a second time and it was, uh, it was digitally presented, which wasn't the end of the world, but it's like, okay, I can, I can see the difference here, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm in the same league as here. I mean, I, I, if I haven't emphasized this enough in this episode, I, I am a huge Tarantino fan. <laughs> so it's like this, <laughs> and specifically Jackie Brown and Inglorious Bastards are like my favorite movies of his. I've actually never seen any Tarantino movies. I appreciate <laughs> you guys inviting me on here. I don't really know anything about him. So. Oh, Tom, it, I mean, we just have you on as like cannon fodder. That's why exactly, we love you. Yeah. 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 But in speaking of that, this movie follows, it falls so in line with what I really like about those films. So it's like, of course I love this movie. <laughs> like it's, it's so, 
Abe, you mentioned and Clayton, you met, Clayton mentioned this as well. But like the there's yeah, there's a sense of meandering. But I I don't dislike anything that's going on. I'm just so into the world of what's being presented here that I, I I'd har- I'd hardly mind if this was longer. So it's yeah, I, I'm we we might have to have a, a special bonus episode where you just elaborate on your uh, expel your love for this movie even further. We've we've talked plenty here today. <laughs> I'll Abe, listen back to it. Abe, where are you at? Uh, I'd say, you know, it's fine. I think it's one of those where you could probably see it in a dollar theater. Fair enough. Uh, all right. Well, that's been our extended review of What's Fine Time in Hollywood. Let's move. Abe, what, what time is it here? Why are you here? Aaron, it's time for a couple games. Let her know if I, that's actually the noise that uh, plays every time that Brad Pitt uses the can opener. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. That's the improv. Did you did you guys talk players. about the the uh, did you guys talk about the flavors of dog food that he has? Oh, what rat and uh, raccoon? And, and raccoon flavor? <laughs> <laughs> wolf wolf tooth. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I've got hey, uh, what, two games what, for you guys. What do you got for us? It's uh it's a quick uh, award season game, and then also a Tarantino tweet storm edition game. I'm so, so glad that Clayton's gone now, so we can play this awards game with. Uh, less, uh, <laughs> he would he would have mopped the floor with us. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer that Clayton isn't here because the tweet storm game features him heavily. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that Robert, there's gonna be one for you, but you know, there's a few for Clayton. Oh, the tweet storm. That's where he's gonna read our tweets to us, and we have to guess who made that tweet. That is correct. <laughs> uh, and anyway, uh, award season. Uh, the first question here. Which of Quentin Tarantino's directed films has the most Academy Award nominations? If you think you know it, buzz, your, buzz in with your Me, name. That's how we play it. Todd. Yeah. Is that Todd? Yeah. Todd. Uh, Inglorious Bastards. That is correct. Do you know how many? Just for brownie points. Uh, well, uh, screenplay, director, picture, and um, uh, uh, Christoph Waltz. It actually has a whole bunch more, too. It has a total of eight, including sound mixing, editing, uh, film editing, cinematography, and original screenplay. Yeah, so uh, it has eight, and the next one is Pulp Fiction. Uh, so, Todd, you get a point for that one. And the second question in the Academy, or in award season, name the film that has the most Academy Award wins of the Quentin Tarantino bunch. Aaron. Aaron. I'm going to say... Django. That is correct. Two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Christoph Waltz and best writing for Quentin Tarantino. All of his others have only won one uh, and been nominated. And that concludes award season. <laughs> <laughs> the next game here is Tweet Storm Tarantino edition. This is where I, like what Aaron mentioned, I read a tweet, and if you can buzz in, if you think you know who wrote it among the four of you, uh, then. Buzz in with your name and tell me who you think wrote it. First one here. Overrated films I want people to consider uh, to come to their senses. Big Lebowski, Boondock Saints, and Django Unchained. Well, was that Robert? Yeah, Robert. 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 Um, Actually, I'm going to change that. I'm going to go to Clayton. That is correct. (laughs) 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 Next one here. So, I'm, so, I'm, yeah. so I understand the premise of this. We are just d- finding out who said these tweets. Yeah, is it one of the yeah. one of the four of us said this? Well, yeah, one one of the four of you wrote these, and I, I googled them or I, yeah. I twitted. Yeah. Okay. okay. Next one okay. here. 
Now I understand. Okay. Inherent Vice is Paul Thomas Anderson's Jackie Brown, especially in that it went underappreciated at the time of its release, venerated later. <laughs> oh, I know, I know who said that. Todd? Yeah, it was me. That's not, that's correct. I'm glad, I'm glad you remember your tweets from like four years ago. Yeah. Well, all I do is all I do is I use the word venerated like every day. I was so. gonna say it's like I haven't used venerated, so I'm pretty sure it's right. <laughs> uh, next one here. Once I learn what a word means, I use it. Uh, <laughs> and there's no stopping you. No. no. Uh, the next one here. Random movie thought number one. Why does not knowing what the gold thing in the briefcase is in Pulp Fiction not bother me? I feel like it should. Todd. Yeah. Todd. Um, Aaron, I think. That Aaron. is incorrect. Yeah, it's not me. Aaron. Robert. Aaron. Is is it Clayton? It is Clayton. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this game's actually a lot of fun when one of the people's not here. <laughs> Ultimately, it, it kind of makes it a little harder, too. Next one here. Just took a nap after the Inglorious Bastards junket. Both were very, very satisfying. Aaron. Aaron. That's a Todd tweet. That is a Todd tweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we already established that I'm the oldest. You know, once you guys feel like, you're like, Todd is at the so reservoir. So you need more naps the rest of us? No, no, but uh, it's like, I mean, that was like 10 years ago. You guys weren't even born yet. So. That's when Twitter first started. Yeah. <laughs> is that my first tweet is the question. Yeah. Yeah. Next one here. Tarantino explains a seven-minute clip is coming. He's currently talking enough to ensure we'll never see it. You have to be somewhere to be doing it. Aaron. Aaron. Is it me? It is you. That was a a San Diego Comic-Con tweet. That's what I was trying to think. It's like, when would this setting take place? (laughs) Next one here. Yes, Deadline. Hateful Eight is Oscar bait, period. Jackasses, period. Uh... I hear you laughing, Todd. No, Robert. Robert called. I was. I was gonna say, but he 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 called first. Robert. I wonder what Clayton on this. That is incorrect. <sighs> Anybody with a steal? Aaron. Aaron. Is it Todd? That's a Todd quote. <laughs> <laughs> that one I did not remember. <laughs> well, you also use Oscar Baton quotes and then period and then jackasses period, which which I thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next one here. Feckless is a word we don't get to use enough. I will try today. Now I feel like Daryl Hannah and Kill Bill Volume 2 when she talks about gargantuan. Aaron. Aaron. Based off Todd's affinity for using words he learns the meaning of, is it Todd? That no. is incorrect. It's no, not it's Todd. Not it's not me. <laughs> I use feckless a lot, too. Because I am. <laughs> Robert Clayton for the... Or Robert Todd for the uh, steal here? Robert. Robert. Uh, I'll go with Aaron. It is incorrect. That is not Aaron. All right. I'll go. Todd? Clayton. It is Clayton. <laughs> Next one here. I was, I was just li- eliminating. I was like, you guys narrowed it down for me. I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Next one here. Yoga horses probably would have worked best as a trailer during Grindhouse. Some amusing moments, but overall, a mess. Robert. Robert. 
I will go with Todd. That is incorrect. Ah. Aaron? Aaron? Is it me? That is an Aaron quote. Okay. <laughs> Robert, uh, I'm next to say that I never saw Yoga Hoser, so I, I could not have tweeted that. <laughs> <laughs> next one here. First time I saw Pulp Fiction, just all right. Overly long. Some good lines. Second time I saw Pulp Fiction, genius. It's a screenplay, it's a screenplay that gets better and better with each viewing. Todd. Todd. Uh, is it Clayton? That is not Clayton. Okay. Aaron. Aaron. Is it Robert? That's Robert. <laughs> Whoa. Don't even remember that sweet whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one here. Wild Tales is Argentina's Pulp Fiction. Dark, witty, funny, and visually compelling. I loved every ounce that it offered. Robert. Robert. I'll go with Clayton. That is correct. It's a Clayton quote. <laughs> I was going to say, I like Wild Tales, but I don't think I would have written it that way. <laughs> uh, next one here. A guy seriously came up to me and suggested I spelled Inglorious Bastards wrong on my t-shirt I was wearing from the Severin DVD. Uh, Todd. Todd. Was that me? That is a Todd quote. Yeah. How yeah. <laughs> many more of these are there? Last one here. Last okay. one here. For the past week, almost every email I receive or I get excites me because I think it's my Django Unchained invite. So far, I'm zero for 500. Todd. Todd. Is it Aaron? That is not Aaron. Hmm. Aaron. Aaron. Is it Clay? It is not Clayton. Robert. Robert. Yes. Robert. Is it Todd? It is not Todd. Trick question. Todd, it was your nemesis, Jermaine Lucier. <laughs> that actually, the thing is that it's a perfect Jermaine tweet, too. <laughs> in in searching your your vastly like, you know, back and forth with uh, Jermaine, which, you know, everybody knows is a joke. But it, some people who don't know you guys on Twitter think you guys are really feuding. Yeah, I yeah, found yeah. the one where uh, where he was where he saw a glimpse of the Lion King. Uh, where he wrote, they just showed a shot for shot opening of The Lion King, The Circle of Life in live action, and I can't stop crying. Hashtag D23 Expo. And you wrote, breaking, Jermaine is Jermaine. <laughs> 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 that, that concludes tonight's edition of uh, Award Season and Tweet Storm Tarantino Edition. What a wonderful close to that game. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thanks, Zay, for popping in here with that. Yeah. Do, you have, do you have to go or you want to stick around for feedback? I do have to go, but okay. I do want to uh, thank everybody for being on. And also, uh, Robert, is good to meet you. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet Clayton, but um, I'm certain that we'll be on the show again sometime soon. Nice to meet you, too. And yeah, I should probably, I, should pro I probably need to sign off as well. But uh, but I it was it was great playing that. I'm 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 always happy when there's an opportunity for me to retroactively dunk on Jermaine. You know, um, you know. But yeah, but yeah. So that was that was great. So all right, well, all right. Thanks, guys, and I'll talk to you guys later. Okay. See you. Bye. All right, Todd. Do you want? Do you want? Do you want to get going as well? Yeah, I think I better, I need to sign off. Okay, we're gonna wrap up soon, but it's fine. Uh, what, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, well, uh, I have, uh, I've been doing some stuff for variety. I did a piece last week about, uh, purple rain, uh, 35th anniversary. I interviewed, uh, Albert Magnoli, the director for, I think it was like two and a half hours. 
and wrote this big piece about that. I did an interview with Robert Richardson for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That was at the playlist. Um, I did uh, this interview with Mike Moe that's going to be on Birth, Movies, Death on Monday. Um, but you can also find me on uh, sci-fi.com, uh, movie phone. Um, and you know, I'm always on Twitter, you know, searching for opportunities to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to roast Jermaine, uh, if at all possible. So, you know, that's at MT Gilchrist. And then my, um, uh, my Instagram is, uh, best dressed Todd. Well, very cool. I'll be sure to link to some of those articles for once upon a time in Hollywood on the show notes for this episode, but thanks again for being on this week. No, and, thanks uh, so much. Yeah. Glad to hear your thoughts on the film and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Robert, uh, great meeting you. And, um, you know, it was great meeting, uh, uh, at least electronically, uh, Clayton as well. So thank you guys so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Sure. sure. All right, man. We'll see, see ya. All right, Robert, just you and me. We're going to start wrapping up the show here. Um, first, we're going to do some feedback. This is where we go over some of the various questions and answers on our Facebook page, Facebook, facebook.com. Podcast. I asked a number of questions to the listeners. They gave us answers. Then they gave us questions that we might have an answer to as well. Um, I'm going to read through some through all these uh, these answers here. And Robert, feel free to uh, add your own as we kind of go through them. They're all uh, Tarantino related. Um, <laughs> our first one here is, uh, what are your top three Tarantino films? Chris writes, how the hell am I supposed to choose? I have to go with the most watched from, from Dust Till Dawn, uh, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. Scott writes, Jackie Brown and Glorious Bastards and Pulp Fiction. I love Reservoir Dogs and then the Kill Bill films. Jordan writes Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill Volume 2 and a tie for Django and Once Upon a Time. Liz writes Jackie, period, Brown, period, and then Jackie Brown. Um, Renee writes Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill Volume 1. I can't wait to see Once Upon a Time. Frankie has Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, and The Land Before Time. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brian has Django, Pulp Fiction, and Kill Bill. Jason has Inglorious Bastards, Jackie Brown, and Kill Bill Volume 1. Or No, sorry, Kill Bill. He considers them both one movie. Adam writes Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, Ample Fiction. Uh, Justin writes Crimson Tide, Reservoir Dogs, and his part in Four Rooms, and From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, Tyler writes Bastards, Django, and Pulp Fiction. And Irene writes Jackie Brown, Django, and Pulp Fiction. Okay, everybody had an answer to that question. Robert, what are your top three Tarantino films? Um, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Kill Bill, Volume 1. Yeah, I'm right there with Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction and the Glorious Bastards. That's where I kind of stand on this. Um, our next question, what are your favorite pairings in a Tarantino film? Uh, Michael Lee, friend of the show, writes uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Walton Goggins. I assume in Hateful Eight. Yeah. Because uh, I'm like, they're not really all together in Django that much. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Tim Roth and, and then Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel and Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Justin writes ja uh, Sam Jackson and John Travolta were good together. Tyler writes... Uh, Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz, and Chris has uh, Jackson Travolta along with Kurt Russell and Chevy Nova. So I, my my two favorites, I think, are Harvey Keitel and Tarantino himself. In, um, uh, in Pulp in, Fiction. Uh, in Pulp Fiction. In, yeah. In the Wolf and, and Jimmy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I um. Actually, you know what? I'll get, I, I would I would say uh, Pam Greer and Robert Forrester. I think the uh, yeah the, yeah the the them and then uh, De Niro and and Sam Jackson also and and, and Jackie Brown. Just the the, the <laughs> aloofness of him versus Sam Jackson's like pretending to be a know it all type of situation. Like there's a lot of just good relationship stuff in that movie. Um, but yeah, let's see. Name a few tracks. Name a few favorite songs off your off from a Tarantino. Yeah, let me back up. Name a few of your favorite songs from a Tarantino movie soundtrack. Chris writes, "Don't let me be misunderstood," which is from Kill Bill. 
Bang Bang, also from Kill Bill, and Unchained, from Django Unchained. Scott writes Little Green Bag uh, from Reservoir Dogs and Rumble by Link Ray and his men from Pulp Fiction. Alan Aguilera, friend of the show, has Across 110th Street from Bobby, by Bobby Womack. And David writes, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, Urge Overkill, and um, the the whistle that L does in Kill Bill Volume 1. I think mine mine would be a Son of a Preacher Man in Kill Bill. I mean, I mean in a yeah, Pulp Fiction. In a Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think that's such a great intro for both, for both those characters to meet. Um, and it's such a... You know the, the the vibe of that song, the tenor of that song is is completely opposite to those two characters. Yeah, for sure. I um, I mean, there's a lot of good tracks. Obviously, I I I think about "Stuck in the Middle with You" often just because of oh, the yeah. placement of that song, like the way you have Michael Madsen dancing around, but then that long shot of where he just walks out of the building and comes back, and then the song's like still going. That's, <laughs> it's such a it's such a cool move, like the, the way he accomplishes that, and that's, that's one of the stick. And, and you know, given the torture that's going on, it plays weirdly against the vibe of the scene, just like you're saying with uh, how Son of Preacher Man plays Pulp Fiction. Um, let's see, next question here. Tarantino has a habit of bringing veteran actors back into the spotlight. What are your favorite performances that fit this aspect of his films? Adam writes, Harvey Keitel and Reservoir Dogs. It started a great run in the 90s between Bad Lieutenant, The Piano, Pulp Fiction, and Copland, just to name a few. Irene writes, Robert Forrester and Pam Greer were, were pretty great in Jackie Brown. Scott writes, David Carradine was great in Kill Bill Volume 2. I hear Tarantino would have used Elvis if he were still alive. Talk about an interesting comeback <laughs> film. Um, let's see, Tyler writes, Travolta and Pulp Fiction. And Catherine has, it was nice to see Travolta back in Pulp Fiction. Hmm. I would, I, even though he has a very, very minor role, um, I'm a really big Bruce Dern fan and I do mm -hmm. love the, the few seconds that he's in, uh, Django. It's, it's just so nasty the way yeah, that he menacing. acts. Yes. Um, I, I, I loved it. Those, I, I, I don't think it was more than 15 seconds in that film, but it, it, when I saw him on the screen, I lit up. <laughs> It's a, I mean, it's very imposing, like just everything that's going on there. Like, I, <laughs> Clayton may not be a fan of Django, but I, I am a big fan of Django. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of just striking detail in that film. And that's, uh, is he wearing sunglasses in that scene? Too? He is. He's wearing really odd sunglasses. Yeah. They're like those, like, I think they're, they're, those sunglasses have like the front shades and then the side shades as well, if uh -huh. I'm remembering yeah. correctly. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. That's why it sticks out to me. It's like, yeah, because he, he has like a no eyes effect, but he's just so, like, his, jawline is so like specific yeah uh, well the next question we have here who is the coolest character in a tarantino film justin writes miss the wolf uh adam has mr wolf and hounds lanta uh, nathan writes shoshana dreyfus steven has my choice is dr king schultz chris has seth gecko from from dust till dawn and alan has the wolf a lot of wolf love <laughs> this question. yeah yeah <laughs> i mean he's i i think they you know, they portray him as a cool character. I don't know if he's necessarily like cool though on his own. Um, and I just said they introduce him at least as, as a you know a cool kind of character. But he's a no know. he's a no nonsense kind of guy. Like I guess yeah. from that perspective. Um, he's you know he's wearing a suit. You know he comes in there. He's like how yeah. are we gonna clean up the situation? Like I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, ugh. you know honestly, um, um, Marcellus Wallace I think is one of the coolest characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think he's just this. You know I think Ving Rhames is 
Ving Rings is just monotone vo- voice does so much for that character too. Just mm-hmm. um, and very sharply dressed. Maybe the most sharply dressed person in that film next to the wolf. <laughs> not not a bad pick. I mean, the, the, with the mystique going on around him and everything as well. Yeah. Um, let's see. Next question we have here. What kind of story would you want to see Tarantino tackle for his 10th feature? The supposed Star Trek film or something else? Luke Thompson, friend of the show, he writes, Tarantino should go full eight and a half Stardust memories, what have you, with a big summation (laughs) movie about a fictional filmmaker remembering his entire career in flashbacks and delusions both reliable and not. He's always been a tad self-indulgent. Let him go fully self-indulgent. Then he disappears up his own rear end and comes out the other side of triumph. It'd be amazing <laughs> or terrible. Maybe both and the ultimate QT. Also, about five minutes of it will be that Vega Brothers film that he has never made. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeffrey writes, I'd be okay with a Star Trek film for him, but I also really wouldn't mind him getting back to his 90s crime roots for one last feature. Uh, Chris writes, no way to Star Trek. What a complete waste that would be. Horror all the way. David writes, I just can't see him taking on Star Trek. The franchise has never been R-rated, and I don't think it needs to start now. It'd be, I'd be okay with him doing another sci-fi or fantasy film, horror too. Justin writes, Top Gun. I love his breakdown. Uh, Tyler writes, just something original. Adam writes, I would like Tarantino to do a spy or a horror movie. Keith writes, Kill Bill Volume 3. Adam writes, Retirement. And Justin writes, Top... Oh, that's the guy that's already uh, the Top Gun thing. A lot of thoughts there. What what do you what do you want him to do next? You know, I really man, that's a great question. Um, I thought I'd heard about like a '30s gangster film for a while from him, and I always thought that would be hmm. kind of interesting. But uh, something in the kind of more in a, more of a noir side of of things, of, of the way he can kind of approach something. Yeah, that feels right up his alley. You know, I I don't know. I I am. I think I've said this about like every I've said this about Spielberg. I've said this about uh, you know Nolan. I'd love for one of them just do a very just stripped back, just guerrilla based filmmaking and just see what mm-hmm. that would look like. You know, take away just all the all all the the, the, the little tricks of the trade and, and see see what they could do on on the slimmest of budgets. I'd, I'd like to do I'd like to see that as a almost as, I don't know a, a, a think piece in itself. I'm constantly curious about that kind of thing too. It's like, yeah, just what if we just took everything away from you guys? And that's yeah. something that's something that, like I I admire Soderbergh for, where he can kind of he's got he went back and forth for a while as far as doing, you know, Bubble and then doing another Oceans movie. It's like, yeah, all right, like it may not always be successful, but it's certainly he's trying to put himself out there. Even last year, I mean, he had was it unsane you know just shooting on an iphone and then he does it again this year of high flying bird, which, bird I, yeah. which i really I'm a, it's still one of my favorite movies of the year so it's like he can it's possible to do like, i mean yeah i, I doubt no <laughs> no one no one's probably not giving up imax cameras anytime soon but i can see someone else doing you know someone else of that kind of name name marquee value like you know tripping down that that kind of path oh yeah and i i you know um, going back to like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that when you know the, the they're doing the um uh the when the DiCaprio uh, Dalton forgets his line and then he's let's roll back to the uh, to the to, to the beginning. Yeah, I love little tricks like that. And I'd, I'd I'd love to see what Tarantino could do of of, of an entire film like that. <laughs> like Death Proof is probably the closest he's gotten. Just yeah, you know, it's still it's still costly, but it's still like a stripped down version of something more elaborate that he could have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we get to we have one question here that's from Tyler he asks what piece of history do you want Tarantino to change next <laughs> um, 
I mean, if we're talking about like the 30, if I was talking about like the 30s, if he, I mean, maybe you could do something with like Al Capone or something like that, mm-hmm. like just like mess with mess with that kind of timeline. Yeah, I was, I'm sad that like there's, I mean, even though it's a great film, um, that there's already been a film about the death of Stalin because I would love to see mm, yeah. what the Tarantino version of that would be. <laughs> He's already done Hitler. Let him do Stalin now. Yeah, that'd be fun. All right, well, that's our feedback. Let's uh, let's move into our, our wrap-up here. We're going to start going over uh, movies that are coming out on Blu-ray, DVD, and whatnot this week. Uh, Robert, feel free to give a yay or nay if you've seen any of these as I go through them. <laughs> uh, first of all, we have Long Shot. Yay, yes, that, yeah. I love that film. I, I was a fan as well. Um, the Intruder. Ooh, nay, I've not seen that. Th- that was the, uh, what, the Dennis Quaid invades the the invades black people house (laughs) oh that may be why might be why i've never seen it (laughs) uh let's see ugly dolls the movie sing-along edition is out this week that exists Uh, um domino this was the the brian de palma film that came out i think very very limited release which is surprising for a brian de palma film but yeah he's got a new one Mm -hmm. uh let's see el chicano this is the film that got what's his name um, the director of uh, Joe Carnahan. Joe Carnahan like fired from Twitter for a while. I, I think he's still like banned from Twitter for a bit for whatever reason. <laughs> and um, let's see, Body at Brighton Rock, which I liked. That was, that was a nice little thriller. Oh yeah, I, I missed that. I was at a few festivals I was in. I just never never got the time to get around to it. We talk about stripped down filmmaking. Like that's just eighty minutes in and out. Very very you know two characters, very stripped down location stuff. It's it's good. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. WB Archive this week has the Thin Man out on Blu-ray for the first time. Oh, um, my God. Love the Thin Man. Yeah, right. Um, Shout Factory has the Reptile and Turbo, a Power Rangers movie. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see on TV. BoJack Horseman season one and two are out on Blu-ray this week, and uh, Deadly Class season one for fans of that show, and Glory 30th Anniversary Edition now on 4K. So there you go. Let's see on Netflix. Uh, this week we have The Great Hack, new documentary out. Heard a lot of good things about that one. Uh, let's see, Orange is the New Black, season seven, I believe the final season as well. For fans of there. And uh, The Red Sea Diving Resort, which I think is the stars Chris Evans, among other people, and, uh, <laughs> for a Netflix original. Uh, on Prime this week, The Boys, season one, the comic adaptation of that show. Uh, let's see, Arctic with Mads Mikkelsen. I was a big fan of that one. And if you're curious, Serenity is now on Amazon Prime as well. <laughs> I did. I liked um, Arctic until the last shot. The last shot, it just I almost flipped the chair. I was I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, Fair I was just go all the way. Damn it, go all the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Next week's show. Next week, we'll be covering Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. It's happening, finally. <laughs> the Hobbs and Shaw movie. It's coming. That's our episode next week. The last thing we do the last thing we do here, Robert, is uh, a thing called What Should People Go and See Now and What Do You Plan to See Next? Robert, what should people see in theaters right now? Um, definitely once upon a time in Hollywood. <laughs> like that uh if you're gonna if you're gonna throw your money behind a film, uh that's that's the one you should throw your money behind. That or the farewell, one of those two films. All right. Uh, what do you see next? Um, oh man, I haven't looked at the the screening schedule yet. Mm. Yeah, come back to me for that one. Actually, um, I'm thinking about that one. 
All right. Uh, well, I would I would also recommend Once Upon a Time Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's fantastic. The Farewell is also yeah. It's in more theaters now, and it's also pretty great. And um, if you can still find it, and Robert, I think you're a fan too. The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, oh yeah. The, up up until Once Upon a Time, where now I have to think about it. It's it was my favorite film of the year. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so yeah, two of these movies are <laughs> are my favorite movies of the year right now. So uh, next, if you can find it. next film I'm saying is uh, quote unquote the little known for <laughs> everyone else, but very well known for critics. Brian Banks, <laughs> um, oh, okay. which feels like I think every critic has got at least ten twenty emails about that film. Um, so I'm gonna be saying that sometime this week for before it releases in, in about a week and a half i think and uh go back to last black man san francisco yeah that is in my top three so far for the year i just love 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 that film um and um next to brad pitt jonathan majors probably has my my favorite supporting actor performance of the year yeah, he's terrific for sure uh, next I'm seeing Hobbs and Shaw. That's, that's what's coming up for me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm, tr- I've been trying to see the Nightingale for the longest time and I, I'm hoping to be able to get a, either a screening or a screener before, you know, it finally comes out. I'm a huge that, fan of the Babadook. So that is a brutal, br- it's a very unlike the Babadook. It is a very brutal film. <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> all right, well, with all that in mind, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Out Now with Aaron and Abe. You can find more of my work on my personal blog, thecodezeek.com. All my written movie reviews end up over there, as well as on weliveentertainment.com, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Robert Daniels, where can people find more of you online? Uh, you can find my previous work on The Spool, where I wrote about uh, Pulp Fiction and the which we've been talking about the entire podcast about that being the last personal film he made um you can also find my work on mediaversity um i'm actually writing a second review of what's upon a time in hollywood for them um let's see oh also uh we were just on my last black man in san francisco you can find i wrote a piece on that a couple weeks ago for rajreeper.com and then you can also find my work on my site 812 film reviews very cool you can find all the other episodes of Out Now with Aaron and Abe on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can email us at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on facebook.com slash outnowpodcast, twitter.com slash outnow underscore podcast, and instagram.com slash outnow underscore podcast. And of course, send plenty of scary clown gifts to Abe at outnowpodcast.tumblr.com. It Chapter 2 is apparently 2 hours and 45 minutes long, <laughs> so you need Abe needs to be prepared. Get all the scary clown gifts you can and send them directly to him. He will definitely not thank you. Um, Robert, thank you very much for joining us for this extended episode, longer than normal. <laughs> well, thank thank you for having me. For sure. Glad to have you here. Hope to hope to have you return. You got one right on the, in the game. If anyone gets someone right on the games, that means they're more than welcome to come back to the show. So it worked out <laughs> for you. Otherwise, we tell you to, hike, to you know take a hike. Clayton didn't even stay for the games, so I don't even know if he's ever going to come back on the show. But, um, <laughs> but no, glad to have you here. Glad. Thanks again to Todd and Clayton for joining us, of course. And yeah, until next time, so long and goodbye. <laughs>
more of these, are there? Last one here. Last okay. one here. Right. For the past week, almost every email I receive or I get excites me because I think it's my Django Unchained invite. So far, I'm <laughs> zero for five hundred. Todd. Todd. Is it Aaron? That is not Aaron. Hmm. Aaron. Aaron. Is it Clay? It is not Clayton. <laughs> Robert. With a guess. Robert. Is it Todd? It is not Todd. Trick question. Todd, it was your nemesis, Jermaine Lucier. <laughs> <laughs> that actually, the thing is that it's a perfect Jermaine tweet, too. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>